The story that I want to tell, but also the story I want to be true about mining, is that it strengthens grids, it lowers electrical rates for citizens, for ordinary ratepayers, and it helps us green the grid, it helps us mitigate methane. Those stories were wrong during the bull run because everybody's just plugging in. Now, those stories are coming true. Hello there. How are you all? Are you having a good week? Hey, listen, look, thank you for all the feedback recently. I had a lot of feedback coming in on the show, uh, especially with regards to the Ted Cruz show. So thank you for that. Uh, mixed feelings about that. Mixed feelings about Ted. I will try and talk to him again. I do like having these conversations talk about trying to break down partisanship. So I'm going to try and talk to Ted again, not on stage, an actual proper long-form interview. So leave that one with me. Also, thank you for all the feedback from the discussion I had between Steve Barber and Nathaniel Harmon. I'm going to try and follow this up. I'm going to try and get Nathaniel and Epstein sat down together, not to debate, just have a discussion. I think it'll be fruitful. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I am your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got my boy, Troy Cross, back on the show. Now, Troy has been absolutely killing it this year. Ever since he came on the show, he's been going from strength to strength, building out his reputation in the Bitcoin industry. He's doing so much stuff now. It's so amazing to see because he's such a great guy. Um, he's been trying to completely shift the narrative around Bitcoin mining and taking on the likes of Greenpeace along the way. He also brought to our attention this new ways of philosophical Bitcoiners with the likes of Craig Warmke and Andrew Bailey. And they've been some of the most enjoyable conversations I've had this year. So when I was out in LA a few weeks ago, I asked Troy to come back on the show and get into everything he's been working on over the last year and talking to people about Bitcoin and mining on the institutional side and how his views on the role mining can play in the energy infrastructure have evolved. I also just want to say a massive thanks to Troy. He's become a friend. Absolutely love hanging out with him. Love every recommendation for people he's said that I should have on the pod. And I love everything he's doing. Troy, you're my hero. Listen, you got any questions about this or anything else you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Anyway, good to see you, Troy. How are you, man? Man, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Your life has changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you told me it would change. I thought it would. <laughs> I think you're an exceptional character. And I, I knew after spending that first hour and a half with you, I was like, yep, you're not going to be, uh, your life's going to change a lot and you're going to be busy. And, and there I am in Amsterdam at a conference and there you are. I was like, what up, Troy? I, I'll give you just a day in the life kind of thing. This yeah. is not a representative sample, but it is the last few days. Um, I was telling Danny and Jeremy, uh, was it Wednesday, I gave a guest lecture at a journalism school class at USC. That went really well. Students stayed after class. Prof canceled his later class and replaced it with Bitcoin discussion with a seminar. That was another two and a half hours. Uh, the next day was specific Bitcoin conference where I did a panel. Then the following day, more Pacific Bitcoin conference, but in the evening, I did a presentation for the Taiwan-US uh, Semiconductor Association or High Tech uh, Forum, which was really cool, followed by a roundtable discussion with, uh, with the founder of the largest and oldest exchange in Taiwan, who was classmates with Bobby Lee huh. and was, you know, anyway... And then now I'm here. So, I mean, this, we still right? get a mention. Like, that's a, what a crazy, like, that wasn't my life, uh, you know, before coming on what Bitcoin did. And now it is. Um, well, listen, Troy, it's all deserved. Uh, we had a massive amount of positive feedback when you first came on the show. The show did exceptionally well for somebody who 
was a relatively unknown person within Bitcoin. Uh, usually there's a correlation between kind of your Twitter following and, and show performance. It massively outperformed it. We had loads of good feedback. So I think it's all deserved and uh, I'm guessing you're loving it. I am. Uh, it, <laughs> this is not a life that I would ever choose, but... Um, it chose you. It chose me, yeah. It, it is thrilling. It's thrilling not because I like being a public figure. I don't like that. That's why I stayed under the radar for a decade in Bitcoin. Um, and I stayed pretty much under the radar as a philosopher too. Uh, but I'm learning a ton. And this rate of learning is greater than anything I've experienced since like the first year of graduate school. Um, and, you know, I've thought a lot about why I'm learning so much. And it's, I think, because the community is helping me, right? Basically, I, that show in particular, before then, but especially after that show, people reached out to me and shared ideas and knowledge with me. Even going into that show, you know, I got, I got a lot of like tutoring basically from experts. I'm not an energy expert. I'm not, a, I, I knew nothing about grids. I know nothing about, you know, different kinds of energy production. I knew nothing really about the mining industry, apart from having mined myself, right? But it was just people in the community that I talked to, like, now you've had all, a lot of these people on the show. I know. Like, Sean Connell came on the show. He gave everybody the spiel that he gave me and Margo. And uh, watching the show has been surreal. It's like it, 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 many of these conversations are just uh, you know versions of private conversations I had with let's say Adam Wright or Nate Harmon right I had this like Nate uh, sent me a DM before he had any followers really on Twitter before he had any visibility and it was like I have I have something to to tell you about the origins of that famous Mora at all paper yeah Bitcoin warming that Forming the planet more than two degrees. And I was like, okay, let's, why don't you give me a call? Here's my number. I sat in my office and we had like this two hour phone conversation where the first hour was about Mora et al. And the second hour was about OTEC. And I was like, this is nuts. You Whoa. know, the Bitcoin world has to hear about this. This was like two weeks before Miami last year. So recorded a conversation again, like the next day I bought one of these mics. Nice. <laughs> and, um, put it out there, it got like a thousand listens, right? And then Level right. 39 wrote a piece about it and then boom. And I realized like, okay, I can do this like for people, not be you, but I can act as some kind of synthesis of, of knowledge, learning myself, but then sharing that knowledge and connecting people with each other. And that's kind of become my role in Bitcoin, like not so much as a thinker, but as a connector. Well, it, it is a meritocracy within Bitcoin in that if you are doing something good, people want to hear from you. And it's fascinating to watch. Like we take a lot of responsibility with the show because it's very easy. Like if, if you just want downloads, we know who to invite on the show. We have, we'll do a show with Lynn on economic, like macroeconomics and then get Sailor on. And like, it's, it's very easy to get numbers, but we also recognize there is an opportunity to elevate people up. We take that you know, we don't take that responsibility responsibility lightly. So when we find someone who we think is super smart, we want them on the show. And, you know, we feel fortunate that we get to like this touch paper and, and watch it happen. And and these guests come in waves. When, when we were making the show three years ago, it would have been very much like a, a Saifedean, a Pierre Rochard, uh, yeah, all these 
uh, Jimmy Song, these old school Bitcoiners who've done so much for the industry. Then we went through this kind of wave of macroeconomists with your Lynn Aldens, your Luke Womans, your uh, Preston Pishes, your Greg Fosses. And now more recently, it's been this wave of more kind of philosophical thinkers, which has been yourself. We've had Margot, Zell. I mean, I'm not sure he's a philosopher, but he's part of the same group of people. You know, Craig, uh, Andrew, Andrew Bailey. My God, we've got to talk about that. I told you. Uh, no, I know, I know. Um, who have we got left? We've got to get... Um, we got to get Bradley on. Yeah, we got to get Bradley right on. Bradley. But you go through these waves and you suddenly get all these new interesting conversations or new things to talk about, which is fascinating, that create these kind of, these pools of discussion. So I and, kind of... And the energy wave, you didn't even mention that. The energy wave. And so what Huge you've, energy wave. Well, you, you've got these kind of almost like subcultures of conversations. You can have traditional Bitcoin thinking. You can have... Bitcoin tech, you can have macroeconomics, you can have energy, you can have philosophy. We've got this whole progressive movement, people like Jason Meyer, um, you know, and all these different kind of subcultures of conversations, which all add up to this kind of like secular Bitcoin, you know, dispersed nation state. (laughs) Yeah, network state, maybe. Network state, yeah, that's Um, what Bellagio would say. Yeah, so look, it's been, I I think it's deserved. It's been fascinating to watch. Are, Are you essentially on a sabbatical? I've taken a semester of unpaid leave. That's what I'm on right now. I'm still advising theses, you know, uh, I'm still doing a little bit of work here and there. I have to write a, I have to write a lecture for the intro, like intro humanities class. Like as soon as we're done with this, uh, on, on Plato's Protagoras, why I agreed to this, I don't know. They're not paying me, but <laughs> Plato's <laughs> Protagoras. Yeah. It's one of his dialogues. What's uh, that about? Well, Protagoras was a sophist, one of the early people who were kind of paid to teach you how to speak Okay, Greek, for the Greeks, you know, they were a democracy. So but rhetoric, Plato hated democracy, right? Yeah. Yes, he did. Um, uh, Don't be surprised. Sure I do read. Really yeah, I do read sometimes. <laughs> well, when people cite Plato, it's very often in the context of like the Greeks had it figured out. They're so great. And they they sort of are responsible for the democratic origins of the U.S. And they don't, they think of the Greeks as pro-democratic generally because they had a democracy. But Plato was, yeah, he was from a, an aristocratic family. Of course, the democracy killed his teacher, Socrates. So he tried to design a state in which his teacher would not be killed, but didn't didn't he want a group of elites that would be voted in to make the decisions? Well, not voted in. Wow. Okay. Deciding amongst themselves. Yeah. I I can't remember. I'll tell you why I I know, I know this. Um, So sometimes I read books um, and when I, I've always been like a proponent of democracy, even though at the moment I think it's, it's under challenge, especially here in the US, uh, and also actually just across the world. And, you know, a lot of people have been critical of my support of democracy. So I just went down the rabbit hole of like the history of democracy nice. and, yeah, you know, and I read, I can't remember the book. Is it Plato on democracy or something? He wrote a book about democracy or the papers have been collected together. So I read it. Yeah, he's a famous critic of democracy. And like the underlying criticism is great. Yeah. It's, it's that like, look, most people, he says there are three parts to the soul. There's the rational part. There's the spirited part. There's the appetitive part. The spirited part is like what's behind courage, but maybe also foolhardiness. And, uh, and then there's the appetitive part. That's like food, sex, whatever, indulgence. Love that right? bit. Yeah, we all, right. We all have all three parts, but they dominate in different people. And most people are dominated by the appetitive part, he observes, still seems true. And so do you really want those people in charge? 
for him, democracy is direct democracy, all citizens voting, and they're voting on things like whether to kick someone off the island, ostracize them. Whether but they're to also kill them. voting on things they don't understand. They don't yeah. have the experience or the knowledge for. Yeah, and more importantly, even if they understood it, their priorities are their priorities are dictated by their appetites. So Plato is like, why would we put those people in charge? Why not put the people who are best suited to rule in charge? Those are the people who are dominated by the reasoning part, but they also have the spirited part. So how do rulers get selected? They have to serve in the military first. Uh, they're guardians. And um, you, you, from, from the guardians, you get the philosopher kings. You know, they also study math for a decade. He was big into mathematics. He would so, have liked Bitcoin. Who'd have loved Bitcoin? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 very uh, it's very scary. It's a, it's a recipe for a totalitarian regime. It's absolutely top down authoritarian, and then basically comes up with a, a system of lying to the populace um, that helps keep everybody mollified, and uh, the noble lie calls it. So it, it's the opposite of the way we think of democracy as, you know, educating the citizenry, bringing them in on government. And no, (laughs) but you, he would look at, he would look at our state today and be like, yep, that's exactly why democracy sucks. Yeah. I warned you, I told you it's governance by the mob. It's governance by the Twitter mob, right? What, what (laughs) you would choose that as your form of state? Well, what else? (laughs) Everything, everything is flawed. That's the problem. One, uh, one CPU, one vote. Although that was a mistake by Satoshi. <laughs> it was. Uh, well, listen, like I say, it's, it's been a pleasure to watch. Um, I've loved ev- every single person you've introduced and recommended. I've absolutely loved every conversation, particularly my therapy session with Andrew Bailey, which just was incredible. It was funny, we, after the words, we were like, oh, this, this show sucked. People are going to hate this. People loved it. It was amazing. Yeah. What I loved about that show, I mean, first of all, I like both of you, I like both of you guys. And so it was amazing. I wanted that meeting to happen. So it was just satisfying on that level. But also Andrew is like doing philosophy in a way that we don't do philosophy in the academy. I mean, this is not what philosophy looks like. It's, it's actually kind of a game. It's an intellectual game we play. It feels a lot like chess. It doesn't intersect real life. And in some ways, when people ask you questions as a philosopher, Real questions about the real world. Like we're experiencing an epistemic crisis right now, trust undermining trust and authority. Like how do we deal with that? Like you're, you're kind of lost because our field is playing these games that don't really connect with life. But Andrew was on it. Like these issues of time and money are real. And um, I, that was kind of amazing to see. And I just don't want to give anyone false hope that that's what their philosophy class is going to look like because it won't. Well, <laughs> listen, he, um, he, he kind of played me in that I realized as we got towards the end, I was like, I've realized like you've interviewed me. Like I, I was interviewing him, but he, he kind of flipped it. He kind of interviewed me. And, you know, I had to be vulnerable in it because I had to expose myself and answer his questions. And I, and I found myself wrestling with ideas during the during the conversation, it he was, absolutely brilliant. Though when he got me with the um, 
Goodwill hunting. Goodwill hunting. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not gonna your be fault. A, it's not your fault. Yeah, I, th- I wanted I, to cry. <laughs> I did too. I was like, "What? What? What's happening? I, like, why? Why? Why do I feel moved at this moment? It was so surprising and weird." <laughs> well, that's, that, so that's one of like my favorite films ever. I've probably seen that film twenty or so times, and it's not perfect, but it's it is a brilliant film. And the way he did that, I was like, "Man." You sneaky fucker. I know. Well, now you know how it was for me. Uh, I was telling Danny, Andrew's a big part of the reason that I popped my my head up publicly. It wouldn't happen without him. The role that he played for you, he played for me. Right. Um, Yeah, I had to get up that kind of courage and self-belief and he he gave it to me and also also helped me think through my ideas. Um, We kind of want to get... Get you all together. I, I think what I want to do is when we do one of our little sprints, we'll pick somewhere. Maybe it's like Wyoming. Maybe we'll go out to Wyoming for a weekend. We'll rent an Airbnb. And I want like separate interviews with you all, but I want one with all of us around the town. I want you. I want Craig. I want Bradley. I want Andrew. Who have I missed? Craig's brother. Yeah. Ooh, that'd be great. Yeah. Brandon. And there's another person who I would love to have in this thing, but he's not out as a Bitcoiner. But I, I, I keep trying to, another friend of ours, uh, I won't, I, I can't really reveal anymore, but let's just say there's another really good thinker thinking about Bitcoin behind the scenes. Well, have the conversation, see if they want to, to do it. Um, yeah. Because the philosophical side has now become the thing I care most about. Look, it's been great to watch that happen too. Well, you're, you're doing philosophy, man. You're, you're doing it in a real way, that kind of way that Andrew is doing it outside the academy. And I am loving it. I mean, I'm loving it. It's like I go to conferences. It, it's really high level intellectually, but I'm getting more like I'm getting more substance and soul out of these interviews you're having than I am at, at the professional level. Well, I, I've been pretty clear from the start. I'm not a technical person. I don't understand it. It can be explained to me again and again. I still just, it's just I'm not technically minded. I never have been. I never will be. Right. And so, but I almost feel like the technical stuff, that's, that's in good hands, right? We have good people. We have amazing people. Yeah, they're handling the tech. There are good people who can do the interviews. Stefan Levera is fucking brilliant on it. He can do that. Like, that's all being handled. We have the kind of militant protection of Bitcoin. That's all being handled. I care about people, and I care about how people coordinate. I care about how people get the best out of life. That's where I have the most interest. That's why I like personal stories. So we now have... Like everybody knows about Bitcoin. Like everyone knows about it on the planet, pretty much. I mean, there'll be some people, but pretty much everyone is aware of it. We're now at the point where it's materially affecting the world for good and bad. I mean, you know, you can loop in what's happened with FTX this week. That is morally one of the most terrible things I've seen happen. We've had three Mt. Goxes in the space of six months. We've got to deal with that. Yes, it could be explained as crypto. The point being is it affects Bitcoin, right? It does. We have people. And, and, and it's like, come on. I was there in 2011, right? I mean, I was there for the whole panics about Mt. Gox and then the real meltdown about Mt. Gox, right? So, yeah. Like I, it, and how many other exchanges? Like when I, when I went back to see what was in, like to scrape empty wallets or whatever, I went back to my like password manager or whatever in Google and uh, was like, this look... All the exchanges where I had at some point had an account, they were all like 404, all of them, you know, it was like BTCE or whatever. And then I'd look up on Wikipedia, like what happened to them? Oh, so it's not like some surprise. 
this has been happening all along. It's just amazing that with each cycle, the story remains the same. You know, nothing gets learned. It's just that we get more clever about it. It's like, okay, we'll involve more people in government. We'll involve more people in, in media. We'll get more famous like athletes involved. But the story is the same. Psychopaths. 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 And, Psychopaths they just, and frauds. They're just scaling it up. But like, it, it's, it's amazing that we haven't learned. And yeah, it's a huge ethical problem. And, and I think the question, the debate we're going to have ethically is like regulation, of course. Like, well, is this, is this a case for more stringent regulations than we have to protect, to protect consumers? Like, you know, and that's going to be, that's not a straightforward question. Well, I you, think. you know what? We're going to come back to that because I'm going to okay. loop back. I don't have the answer to that question, well, by the way. I want, well, I want to finish my, my train of thought, mm -hmm. though, is that, that Bitcoin materially affects people's lives. I have to use Bitcoin for part of my life now. I have to. I literally have to use it for certain transactions, and I'm using it as a wealth preservation. But like, I'm not a great use case. There are people who have to use it to survive. But also, Bitcoin is becoming so big that it is changing parts of the world. Let's just use the energy sector as a microcosm. It is, I see it's doing two things. One, it is changing grid infrastructure. But two, I think it's actually developing the debate around energy, the use of energy, the ethics of energy. So there's these big questions that need answering and, and they're not easy. And the reason you know they're not easy is I will always put out like ideas and thoughts I have and I will see the agreement, the disagreement, whether that is climate change, whether that's diversity, all these big things that we have to wrestle with in life and people don't agree. And I love that because it's like, how do we figure this shit out? And therefore having the philosophers come in, this wave of philosophers, I think it's happening at just the right time because I think we're at that point where these big problems need solving. They didn't need solving eight years ago or four years ago, it's, it's now. And so a wave of philosophers now is fucking great for Bitcoin. Well, I hope, I hope we provide value. You know, I, I think like philosophers don't have any kind of monopoly on insight at all, even on philosophical questions. And uh, like I posted something, somebody was asking me some ethical question the other day. And I was like, I posted like a picture of my gram, grandpa and grandma. I was like, I trust these two. They're dead now, but I would trust their judgment more than any philosopher alive. Right. My grandpa landed on the beaches in Normandy. He raised a family. He ran a business with integrity. He was a generous neighbor. He knew how to have a relationship. He never, ever fought with his wife. Like they settled things through talking, right? Like, no, now I think about the philosophers I know, nobody, nobody stacks up to that, right? So it's like, it's kind of like we need philosophers. We need philosophical thinking and insight, but I like the open forum that Bitcoin is. So it's like philosophers, you think you got answers? Okay, toss them into the ring. Let's discuss them. You don't get any kind of like, you don't get a philosopher card where you get authority to speak on matters. You have to earn it. This is, this is the appeal of me coming into Bitcoin, right? Back in 2011 even, I came in anonymously. I had credibility and authority in the classroom. You try not to use it. Students ask you what to believe, what is right and stuff. And I'm always telling them like, don't trust me. Don't believe me. Listen to my reasons. And, but you can't help it. You just have cachet. And you go into this anonymous forum in Bitcoin, you're nobody. You're just a, a, a nim, 
So there you have to earn your way. And so I'm glad philosophers are here. I'm glad we had the debate. I do think we have some more training. I do think the traditions that we come from offer a lot of wisdom. You saw that with Andrew, we saw it with Craig. But I also love that we have to earn it. And we're, we're not pulling rank. I never want to pull rank. I try not to do it in the classroom. I, I would never do it in Bitcoin. But you, but you can't. That's the other point. And you if can't. you tried, exactly. you know, like Elastic Man is going to ping back at you. <laughs> but it's interesting because I, I think without realizing, Danny and I have a lot of philosophical conversations about what we're doing and who we talk to and where this goes. Would you agree? Without realizing we do. I mean, I don't think they're very intellectual, but yes. No. <laughs> but, but, but we, we do... We like people don't realize how much we think about, about this it. and how much we think about guests and why they should be on and what their purpose is. And we discuss it in detail. I, I realize it. I can see it in the programming. I can like backward engineer your reasoning. But but the, the really interesting thing about Andrew Bailey is, and, and I think about the philosophers, is that people hold quite strong views. A lot of people hold very strong views in Bitcoin, but there is that, what's that saying? Strong opinions loosely held. Yeah. And I think that is a very, I, I try and I want to have more of that. And talking to you or Andrew, I want to know where my blind spots are, where I'm wrong, what I should be questioning. That to me is more important than anything. Because like I say, there is a real world impact from this. Like I've got massive questions. Like my biggest question of, of all is if Bitcoin fundamentally changes the structure of society, reduces down limits the size of the state, is this going to be a net negative or positive? And it's very easy for somebody to turn around and say, well, the state's bullshit and all these wars, yeah, we'd be a lot better. I, sure, but how do we know? Could we end up in a different dystopian nightmare? And that's a, that, that weighs on me really quite heavy. So yeah. I need people like you and Andrew and Bradley. Yeah, and, yeah I think we have to, it's not... That's a, I'm, in, I'm right where you are on that one. I want to step back to something you said in introducing that where you, you're constantly looking for your blind spots. You're constantly looking to challenge your beliefs. And, you know, earlier on I said, I'm learning at a rate I've never learned before. And it's because of people. It's because my new method of learning is not go to the library and think about it. Uh, or I don't actually read that much even in philosophy. I mostly just think. <laughs> I read a couple of paragraphs and then I just think a long time but it's now a who thing like i just have a question i'm like who could help me with that question and uh somebody we haven't mentioned and somebody you should have on your show daniel batten right uh, i've spoken to him a lot is he the guy in australia he's in, in new zealand. zealand new zealand yeah, yeah. like yeah, daniel has completely taken over the methane d debate you know kind of like harold but on the vc side harold rotter that was oh incredible. my god holy Crap, that was an incredible show. You, you should have seen me at home watching the show, like standing up at my office chair, like, what? This is amazing. <laughs> so, but, but uh, you know, Daniel has taken an incredible leadership role, like incredible. Uh, it, it, anyway, I, I reach out to people. What's the downside of this new way of knowing? Blind spots that come with ideological uh, stricture. And it is the mob again, right? It's the fear of blowback when you question one of these things that might not just be your blind spot, but blind spot within the community, you're going to get punished for it. You're going to get, they're gonna, it's going to be seen as a sign of disloyalty when you question a truism within the community. And that's also true in the academy, but it's 
somehow it different and it can be less intense in the academy. You know, it's like, it, it, it's very, as you know, it's very intense because both of us have experienced this kind of blowback. But it's very, it's very rewarding. So a couple of things I've experienced is, I think people fear admitting they were wrong about something, right? They fear it. Like, I can't admit I was wrong because, you know, maybe it's a weakness. I found when you own something that you're wrong about, that people trust you more. And also, you actually get a lot of feedback. There was a thing the other day where um, Zuby put out a tweet to do with COVID. He said, I'm glad I didn't, uh, I can stand uh, proud that I didn't uh, uh, call for lockdowns and totalitarian, blah, blah, blah. And I just replied, I can't say that and I regret it. I made a mistake there. I made a judgment mistake. I, yeah. And every reply was positive. Yeah, positive. Thank you. And it's, it kind of lifts the weight off your shoulders. Yeah. And now, and I've, I've historically always done this, like admitted my mistakes, but some people then say, oh, use another cell phone or you're always fucking up. It's like, no, everyone fucks up. Yeah. Most people just don't own them. And, and most people don't record them. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I'm really In glad. In front of half a million people. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad I wasn't on Twitter and had a big following because I, my record of mistakes is shorter. You know, I have to do less of that. You're right. People are, people like it when you own your, your ignorance. I'm learning in public about all these issues and that's gone pretty well for me. Uh, pe people have responded pretty well, although I am blocked by a lot of people. Uh, kind of environmentalists have blocked me for, you know, for various things. And, and Any prominent ones? Yeah. Catherine Hayhoe? No, I, I don't think she's blocked She's me. pretty amazing. She's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but I have, yeah, I've been blocked. I mean, it all comes down to my accusing people of defending porn. <laughs> because like my go-to when people say that Bitcoin mining needs to be banned is like, how do you feel about processing porn on servers? Like, do you, do you also want to ban that? And if not, why not? Like, you know, you, you think they, porn is more valuable than, than non-debasable peer-to-peer money a monetary network that serves the entire world. And then they're like, blocked. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so maybe, they, maybe they like jerking off more than they like buying Bitcoin. Well, that's, that's the tweet that gets me blocked repeatedly. <laughs> but it's a good question. That's a, I mean, that's, that's what you want from a philosopher. Because you have to think that through. It's like, oh, shit, yeah. But, but yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're right that, that people acknowledge it. But I, I just think that's the weakness of... That's the epistemic weakness in our community is that you fear being public with ideas that might s expose a blind spot. And uh, the epistemic strength is that people, just like Bitcoin is a coordination tool, tool for social coordination that helps us act together. Like people are, people share when in the private world, in, in other aspects of life, that we keep things to themselves, but they bring it out in public and share. And that's how we as a community learn and do together. Bitcoin is amazing as a tool of social coordination, but also epistemic coordination. It's like how we share knowledge and how we do things together, right? So I do, I teach epistemology and I teach on a social epistemology, right? Social epistemology is like how we know things as a group. And, um, and I see Bitcoin is like, it, it, <laughs> a kind of way of knowing as a group that's different from the institution of science, which is the other best way we have, the best way that humans have ever had of knowing things collectively, right? And then I see this blind spot and the blind spot is not exclusive to us, but it's like 
there is a, there's punishment for divergence from an orthodoxy within but them. Maybe within that it. punishment's a good thing because that will that will expose the people with the most courage to stand against it. Ah, that's clever. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, how do you trust the opinion of if everyone if you just say anything anytime without any punishment, would you get anywhere? Like if you had the strength and courage to stand up against something despite the punishment, you might then build a following around that go, yeah, actually, I agree. And that creates strength around an idea. That's kind of what's happened. Yeah. Do you get trolled? I'm guessing you get trolled a lot. I do, but a lot of my trolls have just blocked me at this point. So. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> Less so now. It's so funny, the trolling in, in Bitcoin, you know, we're, we're male-dominated. And the trolling in Bitcoin, as you know, yeah. it all centers around masculinity. Of course. It's like... Don't you, be a you, beater. You, there's trolling on the left, right? And it also involves cancellation. But the cancellation that happens on the left is all about some, some relation to bigotry or insensitivity or not getting some part of how to be a decent person. It's like you're a bad person. That's how you get trolled on the left. And, uh, you know, you're a racist or uh, a misogynist or whatever. And then on the... And then in Bitcoin Twitter, it's just like you're failing to live up to certain ideals of manhood that I have. You're not a Chad. You're not a Chad. Where's yeah, your beard a, and side pardon? And what's weird is that you see ideas get glommed onto masculinity that to me have nothing to do with manhood, right? Like, so what, what, is, what do petroleum products have to do with being a man? Like, I don't understand that connection, but for some reason, like... Uh, for some reason, like in my debates, like energy sources, like electricity is less masculine than burning coal or something. I don't, I don't really don't get that. Well, that's why I, th I put out the thing on diversity. I think we need more women in Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. and, and that triggered people so hard. Of course, because people want everything to be a meritocracy, even though it isn't a meritocracy because you can't have a true meritocracy. You just, it's impossible to have a true meritocracy. There is... People are born with certain privileges, you know, whether it's geographic, whether it's uh, chronological, whether it's economic, people are born with privileges. So, but I also don't think diversity should be mandated. It, you know, I right. don't think you should mandate diversity because if you mandate it, you create reverse discrimination. I don't agree with that, but, but I, you I mean, can- I, I mean, I'm, I'm at a small liberal arts college. And so of course I have seen the yeah. extremes and absurdities that come with diversity thinking, and I'll give you one, it's that, uh, you know, committees all are, are formed with an eye to diversity. You always need like a kind of representative sample on committees. But of course the faculty are not like representative in their composition, certainly with, within certain fields, they're imbalanced. So you end up assigning people from underrepresented minorities to an outsized number of committees because there's only so many of them to go around, but every committee has to be diverse. And you end up push, pushing all this work onto the very people that you want to be represented. And then when it comes time to evaluate their tenure case, they've maybe produced less work because they've done so much service. They've produced less publications, fewer yeah. publications, right? And so it, it's like a slavishness to diversity thinking is absurd. And I've seen the absurdities that result. But also the basic underlying rationale for diversity, it's epistemology, actually. Well, there are different ones, but the one I see is epistemic. Like we all have different views on the world. We have different perspectives, different ways of thinking. You, you want a variety of ways of thinking so that you're more likely to get to the truth, right? Just like you want in different sets of eyes on the same parts of reality. You wanna know how people will react to a certain action. And so 
to know the world, you, you want a sampling of human beings to help you. And to act in the world, you want a sampling of human beings to help you, right? The Bitcoin community is going to have blind spots because of its makeup, unless it's diverse. I mean, I think the Bitcoin community, broadly speaking, is very diverse. But if we were just bros, we would have blind spots. I mean, we, look, you know, look, because I, of that. I, I think it's tough to argue there's a, a, a diversity between, uh, of gender diversity in Bitcoin. I mean, we see, we get the stats from Spotify. It's 98% <laughs> male or something. But like I said, I don't think it should be mandated. I'm not saying, I agree. oh, we should have a certain amount of core developers that are female or from minority groups. I think it's just using intelligence. We had it, when I had my advertising agency, our board right. was four men, okay? And we used to go to our board meetings for the first half an hour, us dicking about and making jokes and hanging out. And then I ended up uh, bringing uh, one of the female account directors onto the board. Not because through meritocracy she'd earned it. She, she'd earned it as she was the best performing female in the company, but we had no female perspective in the business. Bringing her into the room, firstly, two things. We became a bit more professional, but there were considerations to the operations of the business for women that we had not thought about. There you go. For example, I'll give you a couple of examples, you know, in terms of looking after the bathrooms. Men are kind of disgusting. We hadn't <laughs> considered the things that ladies need. Uh, when we would have a, this is more important Good. one. Actually, this has got a, this has got a, like a deep side to it. Um, we used to have nights out after work. We'd go for drinks, go to karaoke, go for dinner. We became considerate of how women have to get home from those events. Men just don't think about it. They just go and get a taxi or walk to the station. There is a more dangerous element for females to consider how to get home. So then from that, we used to provide taxis. Yeah, it's really strange because after that, one of the girls who worked at the company was murdered, which is fucking shocking. That happened not while she was at the company. It was like two, three years after, and uh, named Sarah Everard. Uh, she was murdered during COVID, and she was one of the people at the company at the time. So, like that, having that woman on the board made us think about things like that, about you know considerations for women that weren't there. That isn't about doesn't have to, you don't have to be a meritocracy to do that. You just have to use common sense. And then, if when I bring that into Bitcoin, people are like, no, people on your podcast should be a meritocracy. Well, if I did that, you wouldn't have got on there because you hadn't earned your place. From the you would have the same. 20 people. It's your show. You yeah. know, it's like, it, and I, I think what you just said is absolutely common sense. Yes. Common I don't sense. think there's any part of that's ideological, right? There's it, just to say that like having some women on your show is good for both understanding the state of the world out there and how Bitcoin is being perceived and also for reaching half of the world who are women. I don't think that is ideological. I don't, you know what I mean? What does that have to do with like? What does that have to do with politics? Listen, I was I was um, I had a friend over my house, this girl, and she was uh, asking me about the podcast, and I got it up on YouTube, and I was trying to find her a show to show her it, and she's like, uh, "It's all just like white white guys," and I was like, "Does it matter?" She's like, "Yeah, I don't want to hear about men about money." <laughs> so yeah, that was her point of view. No, she would she was just saying she would naturally be more drawn to hear a woman talk to her about money, and that's cool. There's no issue with providing that. Here we go. Ninety-three point eight percent of our listeners are, are, are male, and and I, look, I get what's going on here. The people who are triggered by it, what they've seen is a world where uh, diversity inclusion has been mandated and gone mad, and they reject that world of, of yeah. creating this, and therefore anything that encroaches upon that then that triggers them. But we don't have to swing the pendulum from one end to the other. We can walk the middle line and just say, look, yeah. is there an intelligent 
reason to do this? And does it benefit everyone in Bitcoin? And yes, it does. Yeah. Bitcoin is for everyone. So what would we, how would we organize what we do if we really believe that? Or, you know, I always feel this tension in Bitcoin between, we have like a cultural niche, political niche too. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's our goal. Goal is like everybody using, using Bitcoin in some, I don't know when, when we get there, but everybody uses Bitcoin as part of their lives. Maybe they don't even realize they're using it. Maybe they just call it money, you know, but where we are and where we want to be. Okay. Well, how do we get there? Well, we can't get there by merely doubling down on and hyper concentrating, like hyper distilling the identity that we have. <laughs> That's not how you, you, you can't by definition get to the whole, like the whole world is diverse. That's a, that's a trigger word for a lot of people, triggering word. But I just mean it descriptively. The world does not look like that stat you showed. And if you want the world to adopt Bitcoin, you have to build a bridge between where we are and where we're going. And that bridge is going to look like the parts that we don't have rather than just the parts we do. But diversity isn't just the color of your skin or your gender. Yeah, diversity is your life experiences. It is, it's the country you've grown up in. It's the economic climate you've grown up in, whether you've grown up with one or two parents. It's a diversity of experiences that you want, experience and thought, not just, I think people immediately think it's that one thing. They just thing. go demographics. Yeah, I mean, look, that was part of my fault because I did focus in on that, yeah. but, but at the same time- I, I, it's I like, know what you're saying, that obsession with demographics can be grating, um, it, but it's more like it's more like we have to build bridges to the parts of the world we don't resonate with. You know, talking to, I talked to somebody and they were like, well, I'm not one of the kind of people who use Bitcoin or I'm not one, I'm, I see the people who use Bitcoin and I'm not one of them. So they're seeing it as an identity marker. It's like a fashion statement, right? Like, am I one of the kinds of people who would participate in that? And then they look at the, the group, some of it is demographic, some of it's ideology. And they're like, I'm not one of them. And that's a, we know, a stupid reason not to Bitcoin because it's not about us. It's not about the group we're in. It's, it's ultimately a very useful tool and uh, it can bring about a better and more just uh, and more efficient world, an abundant world. <laughs> so it's like it, it, they're being blocked by their own perception of, of, of their misfit with our community and what you're doing by diversifying your show, if I can use that triggering word, is you're removing that block for them. You're allowing them to see what Bitcoin already is. You know, a peer-to-peer money that is non-debasable, that allows anyone to store value, allows anyone to transfer value to anyone else. That's the pure, you know, abstract conception of it. And you're just letting them see that when they have something in the way. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry, And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcb, 
G-R-O-U-P.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Also, today we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Well, this is why I am so excited about Jason Meyer's book. I hope... I really hope it's going to be a high-quality book. I'm, I've, I've not read anything that he's written, so I'm putting a lot of trust in it, but I hope it. And I would say to anybody who is politically right and, and into Bitcoin, this is the most important book that has been written for, for them. You. For you. Not because you need to be convinced of uh, left-wing politics or ideas, because what you don't want is Bitcoin being held back by left-wing politicians or media. And so if if they are being influenced, the policymakers or media are being influenced by by this, you're not going to convince that person to become uh well, you're not you're gonna you're gonna struggle to convince a large swath of the population to become right wing, uh become exactly. to the right thing. But what exactly. what you do want is you want Jason Meyer talking to Elizabeth Warren or AOC and saying, no, this is where you're wrong. You care about the environment. Look what Bitcoin can do for the environment. You care about um, the wealth gap. Look what Bitcoin can do for the wealth gap. You, all these issues yeah, that absolutely. you care about, and, and they'll listen to Jason, and they'll listen to Margo, Margo. but they're not yeah. going to listen to Safedina Moose, and they're not going to listen to you know, Pierre Rochard. And that's no discredit to those people. They're brilliant people who have done brilliant things, yeah. but you have to speak to people in their language. And that's why that book is important, because you want Bitcoin adoption, you have to accept that it's going to be a secular Bitcoin world. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, a few good men and, you know, you want you want me on that wall. <laughs> you want Jason on that wall, you know, because, uh, but and let me push back a little bit, because there's a, we're, we're in this hyper-polarizing, hyper-polarized political environment. And in, in America, in America, 
good right good i think it's polarizing that everywhere else it's just worse here. it's nothing like this in the uk we we in the uk we wouldn't politicize charging eight dollars to use twitter that's definitely true you know every single issue is politicized it's like here's here is the current thing are you against it you for it and that's what it is here it's not like that in the uk okay covid was not politicized okay um the environment isn't politicized, okay? These, this doesn't happen, and it's less fight, fight, fight. And I know why. It's because we don't have two-party politics. Mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm. multiple parties, mm-hmm. and we don't have uh, mainstream media channels aligned to those parties whose interests are based on those parties. As I recall, you kind of do, but... Not entirely. Not, not entirely. You know, not entirely. Yeah. You know, not in, it's very different. We, we don't go, BBC is... Uh, the Labour Party and Sky News is conservatives. It just it just isn't. They right. will criticise each party. Like you, the mainstream media here is essentially uh, entertainment op-ed channels for the yeah. political parties. Yeah, it's disturbing. we don't have that. But it's like here's the thought though. Uh, it's the same challenge facing, you know, any politician. Um, you can play to the base and get your base out, or you can reach across the aisle. And Bitcoin has that choice. And yes. that choice is in this political environment. If you're just thinking about kind of like the reproductive rate of Bitcoin, you know, it's mimetic success. There's a case for reaching across the aisle. That's kind of been my perspective the whole time. Um, But there's also a case for hard identifying this thing, Bitcoin, with a particular ideology that has, you know, a lot of energy and adherence behind it. And so I can understand people who want to wed the Bitcoin identity with this strong political identity because that's got energy behind it. So I get it, right? And it, for me, it's just more a matter of like, yeah, I think that ultimately doesn't reflect the truth about Bitcoin. It's not about strategy so much as Bitcoin itself. It's just that code and this set of practices we have around updating and maintaining that, that code and running it. And that itself it's far more, has far more possibility. It is far bigger frame. It is going to change our world in a more like expansive way than this narrow ideology into which we're fitting it. Right. Mm. So I, I, I understand strategically why you might want to double down on a political identity in this environment, because lukewarm politically is not a good place to be. You need to like pick a side and run with it for mimetic success. But the true and underlying and deep nature of Bitcoin I feel like is bigger than our current political divide, certainly bigger than, than any ideology within it. And it's ultimately, you know, a tool for improving the world in, in ways that we'll look back on in, in like an identification with a particular party would just seem absurd or a particular point of view would seem absurd. Yeah, not if you're a Bitcoin podcast host, you want to be lukewarm politically. <laughs> okay. You don't want, you know, because you want to be able to talk to everyone and right. understand where they come from. Look, there's always inherent biases. Yeah, that, that, that will naturally exist. But if you want to, if you want to speak to as many people as possible, you've got to be luke, as lukewarm as possible. Now, that isn't by design. That's just... It's just what I am. This is what you are, yeah. But... The interesting thing about the politics now is that I actually don't believe that conservative politicians 
are really conservatives, and I don't believe democratic politicians are particularly uh, traditional Democrats. Yeah. I think what they, these groups of people are are now grifters. They, yeah. they have found a cheat code to the system, yeah. and the system incentives are designed in a way where they actually don't serve the people who elect them. They serve self-interests. They serve the people, lobbyists. People who pay them. People who pay them. Okay, and so if if Bitcoin will break that down, it will break it down anyway. If Bitcoin breaks that system because the money's so good, it's going to break it down. So meet them where they are. Let's meet the politicians where they are, and and I think it will naturally bring people across the aisle. We saw that with Gillibrand and Lummis, and we need more of that. I mean, um, yeah, just Cause the, sorry, because the incentives will change. Once you get rid of these financial incentives, this lobbying, this who pays you because you have better money, then th th you will have to serve the majority of the people. You, you won't be able to manipulate them, I hope. <laughs> I hope you're right. I think we're seeing, um, we're seeing the polarization in Bitcoin, like on, on the Hill. And you know, so, some politicians will answer your calls and others won't, or emails, and that's getting more and more partisan in its divide. It's not entirely partisan, um, and and you know we, we well we see uh, fundraising letters. For instance, I read a fundraising letter from Jared Huffman, one of one of the people who wrote one of the letters to the EPA asking for more regulation. Right, fundraising letter. We're fighting Bitcoin mining. You know the, the this threat to the environment. Once you start writing fundraising letters on an issue, Elizabeth Warren, um, I don't know if she's fundraising on it, but she's certainly vocal about it. Then it makes it hard for your fellow party members not to not to fall in line and step up because look, it's a way to make, you're, you're creating a moral panic basically. And then you're raising money on that moral panic and still fear and then use that fear to raise money. And we haven't seen that done on the Republican side and we have seen it done on the Democratic side. So I think we're still in the zone where we can put the brakes on, mm. right? Because there's still a chance to educate. And actually the OSTP report, I won't rehash what you did with Nick. I thought Nick was awesome on that. Mm -hmm. But I was much more optimistic than Nick actually in my reading. Like I agree with him on all the facts, but I disagree with him on the interpretation sort of of where we're at. Okay. That, that report was a call for better studies. Like, yes, they cited DeVries. Yes, they cited Mora kind of in a survey, they were, were clear that none of this was good science. And that's why we need to gather data directly from miners. We need good work on what the emissions profile of Bitcoin is. Mm -hmm. right? And their little threat of like, if we can't get this thing in line with our goals, we're going to have to do something like either at the legislative level or at the executive level. Like that threat was like one sentence in the report, but it it didn't have a time frame on it. And basically it was like, come talk to us. That's what I saw it as. Come show us how your trajectory as an institution, as, a, as, a, as an industry is compatible with our administration's climate goals, getting to net neutral. And uh, I feel like that was, uh, yeah, the, the report was FUD laden. And I agree with all the line by line critiques, but I actually saw it as, First of all, we got several sh shout outs to, uh, you know, things that we never have before from a Democrat 
never have before. We, we now have the Office of Science and Technology policy saying that mining on landfill methane is more likely to help than hurt our, our climate goals. We have them saying that we need large flexible loads in grids. We, we never had this kind of emission before. We had them dismantling um, Alex DeVries's, um, you know, carbon emissions per transaction stat. They dismantled that in the OSTP. No, no environmental group, no politician is ever allowed to say that again because we say like the Biden administration debunked that shit. You know, that's that's a huge advance. Um, so, but I think we need to get. We, we've got a anyway. We've got an in. We've yeah. got a, we've got a moment here. The, the Office of Science Technology Policy has opened the door for us to show things, and that the study that Harold Router is doing with Margot with Marissa, you know, is exactly what we need a a an, an LCA um, on methane mining. We need rigorous work on uh, the claims that our industry is making about grid balancing, about you know flexibility, decarbonizing about using waste heat. We need rigorous analysis that we can bring them. And we need our own kind of projections for where Bitcoin use is going. And then I think we can keep the two sides together, right? I, we, can keep, we can keep Bitcoin from becoming just another like, casualty of the politicization of everything, the, the polarization of everything. In this time since we've done that first interview, when was it? Like six months ago? In February, we were just talking about February it. February yeah. was fucking 10 months. Yeah, isn't that Jesus. crazy? Yeah. It, it wow. feels, it honestly, it feels like 10 years. Damn. <laughs> Whew. Um, in that time, how has your understanding of Bitcoin changed? What, was, what has evolved in your thinking? Oh, my God. I mean... I mean, so much of that. I mean, I'm a, really... I'm a philosophy teacher, so like, <sighs> I learn from you. <laughs> I mean, so much, I can't even, I, there's no way I can boil it down. I can tell you what's changed in the way I think about mining. Please do, yeah. I think that we were in a moment, we had, we were in a particular moment that's unrepresented of what mining is in its essence. And that moment was characterized by really three things, uh, low electricity prices, an incredible run-up in Bitcoin prices um, themselves from whatever it was, 3,000 to 69,000. And the China ban, uh, China banning mining, right? Which made mining ungodly profitable. And in the middle of this bull run, there was like a panic to get a hold of ASICs because they essentially printed money for very cheap. And that led to a migration of mining to the U.S. and Kazakhstan, but mostly in the U.S. because that's where we have deep capital markets. Deep capital markets, what does that mean? That means people could borrow a shit ton of money and get out over their skis, which is what happened, right? At very low interest rates. At very low interest rates. Just why not borrow fiat, I mean, and, and then buy a money printer and then plug it in somewhere. And then the U.S. also has all this kind of aging infrastructure that doesn't have a lot of buyers of power because... Uh, you know, aging industrial in infrastructure, ironically, because the industrial manufacturing had fled to China. So like we fed them our you know, industrial manufacturing and emptied out factories, leaving behind substations and transformers and access to hydro and stuff like that. And then they ban mining and then the miners come over and plug in to all of that. It's out fucking amazing, isn't region. it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's those were mostly fossil, right? Um, some cases, coal plants, other cases, natural gas plants. It's where we had available places to plug in. 
and you just plugged in whenever. So we saw, uh, you know, all of these miners looking to looking for places. And then this freaks out like the Sierra Club because they are looking at these kind of aging power plants and they see, oh, no, it's not shutting down on schedule because Bitcoin miners are moving in. And then they see the number of like applicants or the potential interest. And they're like, we're going to blow through all of our climate goals because we're going to keep these fossil fuel plants open. They never think, well, this is a unique moment in Bitcoin's history. We just lost uh, half the hash rate from China, making it twice as profitable to mine in the, in the short run. We, we, we don't have enough ASICs to go round. So the profitability of a particular ASIC is insanely high. Of course, that's a supply chain issue that will eventually ease. But also because of COVID, you know, the supply chain issues are bad across the board for chips. So it was like a we were in this perfect storm moment that led to mining just being about finding power, not cheap power. And we see what happened with the contracts that were signed in that period, right? You sign a power contract, you don't have when you are desperate to plug in machines, you don't have the leverage to necessarily hedge against the possibility that power price goes up. And then what do we see? That's when we get reports that are based on that moment in time as the essence of Bitcoin. It's just gonna grow, 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 grow. And a lot of Bitcoiners too echo that because of they're like insanely bullish. You know, you get the tweet that like, you know, Bitcoin's going to 500,000 or a million dollars of Bitcoin, in which case the ASIC supply still won't be able to catch up. It'll still be profitable to plug in mining anywhere. So the blind spot here for Bitcoiners is not thinking we have bubbles, they pop, right? And you see it now in bankruptcies, like throughout the mining industry, both Bitcoiners, I'm thinking about the meme, you know, the, the handshake meme between like Bitcoiners and, uh, and, their, and the environmental critics, they both agreed that mining is going to blow up 20 fold and just, you know, use all the electricity in the world. <laughs> they're, they're both unified in that agreement. And they, they were both wrong. Their blind, blind spot is not seeing how anomalous and different that particular moment in history was. And instead, projecting out that trend in the future. And it's the same thing that the World Economic Forum and Newsweek did back in December of 2017, when they said that we would use all the power in the world by 2020. Same freaking mistake again. It's like the, the mistake that, you know, just like the, the, the way that exchanges keep collapsing and people, people keep leaving their Bitcoin on exchanges and then losing it. And they never learn the lesson seemingly that if it's not, if not, your, key, not your keys, not your coin. Also, the critics of Bitcoin seem never to, 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 you know, realize that during a bull run, that is not representative of Bitcoin's path. It's not, it's not all going to be like that. And they just project it out. So what, what have I learned about Bitcoin since then? I mean, I saw this before the collapse and I've been saying this for a long time. You know, I, I used the dung beetle met metaphor last time I was on your show. Mm. Right? It's going to go into the crevices of price. It's going to be extremely price sensitive. And that's going to, all the price sensitive kinds of mining are pro-social. That means it can use waste energy, whether that's on landfills, whether that's flared gas, whether that's stranded solar and wind. Uh, the cheapest forms of energy are forms of energy that are the best for the environment and the best for the grid. Amazing. Right? Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. So it's like that I've been saying that for a long time, but it wasn't really true because, because of that moment in, in Bitcoin history, 
what matters is that you found a place to, to plug in. And everybody was saying to me, well, never mind on solar. It's intermittent. It's intermittent. It's not reliable. I got a lot of solar haters in the Bitcoin community. But I was like, yeah, but we'll be able to tolerate some downtime. And they were all like, no, you have to mine with like 100% uptime or it's not profitable. And they were right for the particular moment we're in. Because there is a constraint on the ASICs available, each ASIC is worth a ton. It's printing money and there's only so many to go around. And so there's a lot of depreciation there that you have to cover when your ASIC is $15,000. You got to get $15,000 before it's phased out. But in an, in, ultimately, we know that the cost of an ASIC is going to trend towards the cost of production. Otherwise, more people would just keep producing ASICs, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't cost that much to produce an ASIC. So, and we know that there's going to be more and more old models in the fleet left around. Like S9s are basically junk now, but not completely junk. Not completely. Because they're still printing money. And if you have excess power, why not plug in an S9 rather than not plug it in? And if that's only six hours a day, where it's you know negatively priced or one cent a kilowatt hour, why not do it rather than not do it, right? So the uptime requirements, I got pushback on that from the Sierra Club, from the environmental side. Oh, you need 100% uptime. You can't play this flexible role. I got the same pushback from the Bitcoin community. Oh, we'll never be able to mine on solar. We need 100% uptime. <laughs> and what happens, you know, the, the CapEx requirements for mining plummeting, the ASIC supply chain easing, the uh, difficulty skyrocketing. I called this one, you know, a difficulty... People are like, difficulty can't keep going up. We're dying. And it's like, no, it'll keep going up because have you seen how many machines are on order? Those machines are going to be plugged in rather than not plugged in if we can find cheap power for them. So this, what I've learned about Bitcoin mining is how peculiar that particular moment is in time, that run up, and how different it is from Bitcoin's, like I would say, true nature over time which is the dung beetle. It is extremely price sensitive and it is extremely pro-social, pro-environmental. And then it'll be false again, all those things I just said, if we have another crazy bull run, right? The way it is. That's the way it is. And then, you know, and that's kind of what you're buying when you're buying an ASIC. You're kind of buying a hedge <laughs> for an, a fast run up in price and you're betting that the supply chain for ASICs won't be able to supply ASICs at the rate they need to so that you will be able to mine profitably on even expensive power at that time. On that pro-social side, how far away do you think we are from being at a point where Bitcoin mining is a net negative for the environment? And when I say net negative, net negative with emissions. Oh. Not, not Because we have so many interesting projects. We have, you know, Bitcoin miners being part of the grid and part of the grid being supplied by renewables. We have the work being done by Adam Wright with regards to um, landfill sites. You know, are we trending towards getting to the point where we would actually be able to say, look, there is a net negative, like what well, mining is a positive for the environment. Because once we knock that one down, like Elizabeth Warren's fucked there. She's yeah. going to have to come up with something else. This is we really need. We really need good academic work. The truth is I can't answer that question with any kind of authority. Okay. But let me give you some, some, let me give you some Tell me about the journey where we're Let me tell you about the journey. Okay. So uh, one resource here I got, I have to shout out is Daniel Batten's stuff because he thinks it's like two years. 
He thinks in two years alone, we will be at net carbon equivalent neutral to negative. Um, Not everyone agrees with him. I've seen him challenged. Exactly. So I think the only way to settle this is with a, you know, uh, a true deep study of all the inputs to methane mining on landfills. Like those machines uh, are huge that treat the gas, that spin turbines to generate electricity with the gas, right? Um, And then the miners themselves, you have to look at like the inputs to that entire setup. And then what is their lifetime? How fast do they break down or need uh, maintenance? And then you have to like kind of amortize that for their carbon footprint or whatever over the lifetime of the operation. So that's a rigorous analysis. I'm meeting somebody from the University of Texas who does this for methane flare gas mining or flare gas flaring, I should say, um, already does this LCA stuff at uh, UT Austin, but he doesn't know anything about mining. Um, Someone actually, someone from the White House put me in touch with him. Uh, Flex. Flex, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Big time, Charlie. Uh, I'm just one of the many people I think that the White House reached out to 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 talk to, right? But like, this is the kind of this is just an academic works works for the White House who you know puts me in touch with somebody else. But like, that's what we need. We need like we we don't have an answer. But let me let me give you some of the other open questions that help towards that. Yeah. So we have this paper written by Josh Rhodes who is a legit energy expert scholar for Lancium um, through his shop, Ideasmiths. Who's Josh? Josh Rhodes. Don't know him. Should look him up. Should we have him on? Uh, quite possibly. I don't know. He's not a Bitcoiner. Doesn't he he trashes be. Bitcoin a lot on Bitcoin Twitter. Let's get him on then. But he wrote a paper for Sean and the others at Lancium. And recently he reiterated on a panel, do you know Spencer at Sangha Systems? No, no. Okay. no. Well, spent. okay. There's another possible guest, but he repeats, repeated this on a on a panel with Spencer and a couple of others recently. So I think it's still the conclusion. At least Josh still thinks it holds. Conclusion is like how much flexibility do we need in a data center in ERCOT in order for it to be net carbon negative? So flexibility is like the yeah. amount of downtime that can be called upon by the grid. The more flexible the the load, the the more the grid benefits um, because it can chop off the, you know, it can shut them down when it has peak demand. So they're not adding to peak, but it gets more revenue from the times when there's not as much demand. And that revenue allows them to build out new generation. And the generation that they're building out is largely renewable in that grid, right? They're adding wind and solar at an epic rate. So if you can give more revenue to the system to build out renewable, then you are adding load on the system, critical load on the system, then you'll be net negative. Well, has the work been done to look at the inputs for the creation of the renewables? Because that's one of the criticisms that comes from people who think the renewable stuff is a myth in that you, you know, what you require to build wind turbines, you know, to build solar panels, you need coal for solar panels, then you have to ship them from China to the UK. And then you're like, has the inputs been included in that work? I'm not sure if it's in Josh's work, if it's in this number that I'm about to give you. That's something maybe to ask Josh. Because that's that's, that's an important question. I, of course. Know, because I don't have an answer for that. When somebody says, well, it's, you know. 
Well, okay. Here's I, I, I've since our previous show where you kind of asked me this question, and I was like, ah, I don't know. I did look up a ton of sources on the you know what what the inputs are, and and what's interesting is like there's a range. Right. It depends on how and where things are made, and the materials are changing, the methods are changing, like whether they're recycled is changing. Everything is changing. You even mentioned like coal from China for solar, right? Well, we can make solar panels here in the U.S., and we do. Okay. And, um, so it, it basically everything is up for grabs. What I want to do is like really want to, I want you to interview Nick Morley. I don't know if you, if you can. Why do I know his name? Nick is awesome. Okay. Nick is one of my, uh, uh, like he's one of my tutors. Okay. So long time solar guy from Australia, solar engineer, but now he's working for a bank in Singapore. Where's he based? Now in Singapore, he just moved to Singapore. There's more and more reasons to go to Singapore at the moment, Danny. It's a short trip yeah. for me. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, Nick is the one who helped me sort of put me onto the sources, analyzing the, the inputs to all of these forms of renewable energy. And it's, it's varied, but let me just say that the critics of those inputs take the most ridiculous estimates. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the energy that you, that's required for building solar panels is paid back very quickly. The energy for wind is paid back very quickly. The energy for batteries is paid back very quickly. So I, I, I and there's a lot of, there's a lot of FUD around that question, but okay. I think you should really talk to an expert on it. You should okay. talk to Nick, but let me get to the number that I'm getting from Josh. Because since Josh isn't a Bitcoin fan, it's not about whether we buy this number. It's about whether, it's about whether the Elizabeth Warren's out there. She's like, whatever, going down to Texas to figure out what we're doing. This is the number that he gives, 85%. If we can hit 85% uptime or less, that's net decarbonizing for the ERCOT grid, okay? So I just looked at like, I was just on a panel with Jason the other day. I looked at riots uptime for the recent months. So three months ago, their uptime was like 50%. They had a low, remember when we had that grid kind of crisis and yeah. they turned off for a lot of that. And then the other months are like, 60%, 70%, 80%. All the recent months are under 85%. And that's mm. Riot. They're not one of the, they're not the company you think of when you think about decarbonizing the grid, but they provide a lot of downtime. That is a huge benefit to the health of the grid, but also to the efforts to decarbonize the grid, whether they want it or not, right? And they are hedged against that downtime with contracts. Contracts that anyone could buy and that are sold to them by whatever, hedge funds, whoever's on the other side of that trade. And Riot did really well during their low uptime month, not on the Bitcoin side, yeah. but on the hedge side. I know. Who, who I think was it was coming? about 10 million they made during that time just for being offline. Yeah. It, it's crazy. But, you know, of course they got taken to task for that. Even in the OSTP report, Washington freaked out you know, because it's kind of like, you know, they're selling shovels in a snowstorm or something like that at an exorbitant rate. That's how it was perceived in DC. Mm. But as far as I can tell, looking into it, they didn't take advantage of anything that anyone couldn't have taken advantage of. And their counterparty was not rate payers, but like hedge funds or other institutions who are on the other side of that contract, basically betting that the power price would be low. They basically bought an insurance product and then, you know, they bought flood insurance and then there was a flood. Yeah, but those bastards. We are gonna need analysis of like how much flexibility Bitcoin miners need to offer in order to be net neutral in every distinct grid setting, because the ERCOT setting is different from the Queso setting. It's different from 
any other grid around the world. So there isn't a magical number of like how much flexibility you need in a grid to be net neutral. But a case study that proves it can be done is a case study. I mean, when I hear about what Adam Wright's doing, and then I look at the UK, which is a, doesn't have a particularly pro-Bitcoin stance, the banks are shits about it, the government... So you've got a few people like virtue signaling they're interested in cryptocurrencies, but there's nothing really happening. But imagine you could just I could just ship Adam Wright into the UK and say, we can solve this issue you have with landfill sites. Well, you've got skilling mining there. Yeah, mm-hmm. have you seen them in Ireland? Ah, they've reached Mark. out to me. Yes. I've spoken to him a little yes. bit. Should interview Mark. Yes, we should. But but we need this. We need these case studies to go, okay. That's one of your criticisms. Well, you're wrong. This is what we do. Let me give you another one. It's heat. It's waste heat. So I'm talking to miners in Northern Europe and they're using grid mix. Grid mix is pretty much renewable, but they sell their heat and uh, they're using heat for district heating. Um, you know, lots of homes using the same heating system. That low grade heat actually helps their heat pumps to work in the winter. So they're not it's like they're not using heat pumps, but they're using resistance heating as a precursor. They're also using it for, I mean, all of these things that you would ordinarily use heat for, right? So heating greenhouses to grow food, heating greenhouses to grow flowers, for drying wood, for distilling uh, uh, whiskey, you know, for uh, uh, paper processing. Paper mills use low-grade heat. Basically, any industrial application of low-grade heat could have a miner in line. 100% of the energy that goes into a miner comes out as heat. It comes in as goes in as electricity, comes out as heat. Now, if you ignore that, you'd be like, oh, Bitcoin has a foot has a carbon footprint. But if the footprint already existed in the form of a resistance heater and you've simply substituted in a miner, you 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 have carbon neutral mining, even though you are responsible for reducing carbon carbon neutral relative to the heating without mining, right? So we have to quantify that and track that. Um, and that's uh, that's tricky. That's not part of the accounting. If you look at Cambridge's site, first of all, Cambridge does not include off-grid mining. And now almost 3% of mining is off-grid. Um, or sh- I shouldn't say that. Almost 3% of mining is, I think, on gas, flared gas, mostly flared gas, right? A much, much greater percentage is off-grid, meaning it's like behind meter at a dam or at a uh, wind farm or at a solar farm. The way that Cambridge is calculating the number of Bitcoin's impact is looking at like basically, you know, your zip code. Like what what region are you in power-wise and what's the average mix of that region? And then how much power are you using? And then they just... Estimate which region you're in by looking at your IP address from the pool, which could also be wrong. You could be using a VPN. But also, are you an average consumer in your region? Not if you're parked behind meter. If you're parked behind meter, if you're at a hydro plant, your power is is green while the grid is not. So there's, there's a lot we have to do to address the question of what Bitcoin's carbon footprint is. And the truth is, and this is why I just said, like, I don't know to your question. Like, I don't know what the footprint is and I don't know when we hit carbon neutral. I think we need better accounting methods and we need case studies. And we need it's basically like we, we aren't built. Our, our epistemic machine is not built 
to quantify the impact of Bitcoin. You hmm. know, it's not built for that. And then, and then look at the substitution effects. So when you have money that goes into Bitcoin, I said that's on the show before, it, what does it not go into? Where's the capital coming from? If it's the S&P, we're already decarbonizing because the energy, the emissions impact is lower than it would have been. You know, is it gold? Well, I think our carbon emissions profile is probably greater than gold's per unit of value, right? But we don't have the other effects of gold mining, which are like chemical pollution, right? <laughs> all of the tailings and pools. So it's kind of like- uh, And uh, propping up dic dictators. Propping up dictators, right. It's like, what are you substituting for? Since Bitcoin is a record of the past, a monetary network, a store of value, it plays a lot of different roles. You know, to what extent are we replacing the petrodollar in the U.S. military? To what extent are we replacing the banks and Visa? To what, what do we subtract out? When you come up with an electric car, we come up with a footprint pretty easily because it's a, a kind of footprint. Because it's like we know what the impact of cars are and you know what the impact of an electric car is. And it's like, OK, you know, if the electric car uses less over its life, lifetime, which I think it does, we can just look at the difference. And that's how much carbon you're saving. But with Bitcoin, we don't have a set class of alternatives to compare so we can just subtract and see the difference. Even the electric car, though, is made up. All, you have to take into account the energy mix for that, too, right? Because if you're charging it on a grid that's powered by coal, then... Exactly. So the IEA analysis of electric vehicles has different components. One component is like the parts of the car that aren't the battery. Then there's the battery part of the car, like what energy and what emissions required for that. And then there's how much does it cost, how much emissions to charge it over its lifetime, given a certain grid mix, mm -hmm. given a certain amount of miles you drive. And then for the gas car, you know, the same thing minus the battery. How much did it cost to manufacture? I mean, what, how much emissions for its manufacture? How much emissions come from the gas and the supply chain to get the gas to you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then that's also going to be dependent. Like, do you live in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> you know, how, how far does the gas have to travel, et cetera? And, and so it's hard to generalize, but it looks like um, even including everything, if you drive more than, you know, 10,000 miles with the car, that's like where you hit for a typical electric vehicle. Right. You hit the flip over point where before 10,000 miles, you have a bigger footprint uh, with, a, with an electric car and after you have a lower one. So the more you drive, kind of the farther you get, get ahead of the gas counterpart. Got you. Hmm. I mean, anyway, you see the comparison. I do, I mean, yeah. Quickly, you have a gas, you have electric. What is, if, 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 if Bitcoin is the electric vehicle, what's the gas vehicle? And because Bitcoin is like not like anything else, uh, which is why it's, you know, bloody hard to explain this thing, uh, then what do we compare it to to do our math? We're like intellectual pioneers here in trying to find the comparison, trying to find the footprint, doing it rigorously. And we're just, all I can say is we're just at the beginning of that process but it's extremely hopeful. Well, it puts this other pressure on now that we need the Bitcoin price to grow. We need increased adoption because adoption can increase the pace of change for integrating Bitcoin miners in landfill sites. Like we, we need further adoption. We need the price to grow. This is, I don't think it's probably been particularly helpful that these scams and frauds that have crashed the Bitcoin price over the last year, they've not helped us. I, I disagree. Okay, tell me. I, I think it's good. 
I think the Bitcoin, I mean, the companies I'm advising are going to hate me for saying this, but I think it's great that the whole mining industry is in pain. Um, the pain isn't great. You know, just like these consumers are suffering from getting ripped off by FDX, um, I feel for them. But I'm glad that FTX crashed. Like otherwise, it would have just crashed later, right? So I'm, I, and, I, and I think we're seeing a purification within crypto. We're seeing what it's like. It, we're getting the dross off, and we're seeing what's pure, and it looks more and more like that pure thing is Bitcoin. Right? Yeah, but are we laying an empty road for new scams? That's what I worry about. Like, give it four years, the same bullshit will happen. There will be a new SBF, a new psychopath, a new fraud. I, I'm not. I'm not saying that won't happen. Yeah, but I am saying that showing what is real and showing what's not real is worth it because everybody basically ran an affinity scam on Bitcoin, right? We're, oh, Bitcoin's great. So are we. And the, the, I mean, this is what scammers do. They find something that's true and valuable and amazing, and then they latch onto it and use it to take people's money. And so watching this stuff crash down, yeah, it hurts. And yeah, maybe we need to think really hard about how to stop it from happening again, because it will. Takes but, us full circle back to regulation. <laughs> takes us back to regulation. It's an uncomfortable topic. But... It's a good thing to see the water drop and see who's swimming naked, right? That's mm. good. Okay, same with mining, except even better. Um, as, as the price of Bitcoin comes down and the power price is up and hash rate is up, only the strongest are surviving in the mining space. But also, I mentioned this earlier, the forms of mining that are lowest margin are and the most flexible are the most pro-social. So the story that I, I want to tell, but also the story I want to be true about mining is that it strengthens grids, it lowers electrical rates for citizens, for ordinary ratepayers, and it helps us green the grid, it helps us mitigate methane, right? Those are the stories that I want to tell. Those stories were wrong during the bull run because everybody's just plugging in. Now, those stories are coming true. And so if, here's how, what I want. It's not that I don't want Bitcoin to grow in price. I, I do. And it needs to grow in price in order to be big enough to help us make the transition, actually. It needs to be bigger in order for us to mitigate enough methane to make a meaningful difference. But we, in order for it to grow, we have to see that narrative be true and mm. mining migrate into all these pro-social forms. And then it can grow. And I hope to God it grows slowly and organically. Because if it grows slowly, it's like we keep adding to the kind of mining that we know will survive in a downturn. If it spikes up again, and Sean Connell said this on your show, and it's absolutely right. If we go through another you know, 20X in Bitcoin's price, local grids will be stressed. ASICs won't keep up. Local rate payers might pay more as they did in various Plattsville, New York, or whatever. And we're going to get all the all the blowback again, and then all the work I'm doing, like <laughs> the BPI work, laying the foundation for how Bitcoin can be pro-social, is all going to be like put on hold again, and I have to go through another cycle of like, uh, wait, 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 Bitcoin is going to be pro-social again. Just wait for the price to crash. <laughs> well, well, maybe it's like of every four-year cycle, it's pro-social for three years, and and it's not for a year, but it's net pro-social. Look, I. I know you want that. I would love Bitcoin just to have steady, constant growth. It's not going to happen. Gonna happen. It's not how it's, psychology works. Yeah, it's not how human incentives Mind, yeah, work. It's right. greed and fear. And I think we will keep seeing that. 
perhaps that needs writing into the contracts with the grids. Exactly. So this is where if I were a regulator, uh, Bitcoin is going to hate me for this. If I were a regulator, I would look to kind of protect the grid against sudden uh, sudden new loads and actually losing sudden old loads. The grid needs Bitcoin in a way. You can hurt a grid by just shutting off a huge operation when they come to rely on it for, for uh, ancillary services. So I, I would be very careful in structuring contracts, first of all. But if I were a regulator too, I might guard against a sudden influx of massive load that would really destabilize a grid and push up rates. You know, so I might put caps or percentage, percentages of new load that are allowed. Like, I think that's not ridiculous for a local community to think about, right? I would do that if I were a mayor or something. Let's have the difficult conversation on regulation. I am pro some regulation, okay, some. My issue with regulation is that we've seen in the last few weeks with everything to do with FTX, it is corrupt itself and can be co-opted by people with money. Absolutely. But I think the fundamental ideas behind certain regulations are good. For example, I think regulation with regards to weapons are good to an extent. Okay, here in the US, you like your guns. In the UK, we don't. And I'm okay with both, right? But I don't think anyone here should be able to own a missile launcher or a tank or a nuclear weapon. I'm okay with... Yeah, I know. I'm just okay with not... With the idea of getting on a plane and not worrying there's some fucking idiot with a missile launcher wanting to take it down. I'm just kind of okay with that, right? (laughs) Um, I'm okay with regulations with regards to the um, build-out of nuclear power plants. They're probably a bit too regulated and makes it difficult to roll them out. But again, certain things with to do with... You don't want the backyard SMR? Yeah, no, just yeah. Like, I think you can have sensible conversations around regulations. Okay, what do we think of regulations with regards to Bitcoin and crypto? What do we think of the SEC having jurisdiction over securities? What do we think about the CFTC having uh, jurisdiction over... Uh, commodities. I don't know. I, I, I empathize with both sides of the argument. I empathize with people who are anti-regulation because it could be corrupted. But I empathize with people who are pro-regulation because they don't want to live in, a, in the Wild West. I, I get both sides of the argument. I think, personally, a certain amount of sensible regulation is okay. I think a certain amount of consumer protection is okay. I think we need to do a much better job, though, at prosecuting criminals who fraudulently, fraudulently destroy people's lives, okay? That, I think, absolutely we require. Now, I don't know the full answer to this. I don't know what regulation would have stopped FTX happening. Yeah, it was in the Bahamas for one. Yeah. You know, it wasn't FTXQS, so it's, it's a hard question, right? Yeah. I think, uh, we, first of all, we will get big-time regulation. I think what just happened was like a, you know, like the stock market in whatever 1929 and we're we had all the regulation we have now is a result of that moment in in in, in securities and we just had our version of it i think it's that that big right well i think you can do a good comparison to 2008 you know with these mortgage-backed securities and we had we nearly collapsed the global economy well we did collapse the global economy and it pushed 
pushed the world in like I mean people lost millions of people lost their homes had their lives destroyed because the banks were reckless the banks now have stress tests they have to follow now some would say they're too stringent fine I'm open to that argument but they those regulations were put in place for a reason to stop the banks over leveraging themselves and destroying the economy is that a bad thing I don't know I'm not sure I'm, it's not. It's outside of my expertise, and I'm in the same position you are, and I'm just not going to answer that. But I will say, what we have to keep in mind is that Bitcoin ultimately will threaten institutions of power. It's going to threaten. I don't think you know. I'm with. I'm with the pro dollar people. I don't think it threatens the dollar for decades, right? But ultimately, it does. It does threaten the ability of people to spy and censor on transactions. So whatever the answer to that question is. What I'm wary of is that rationale with protect consumers being a backdoor to the state, you know, doing what it wants to do, which is preserving power for itself against uh, against a threat, which is Bitcoin. And I'm on the side of Bitcoin in that one, right? So I'm just with you, hundred percent. I'm just like watching out for that angle because you know it'll be there. You, here's here's what's going to happen, right? We know this will happen. Consumers are hurt. There's a lot of pain. People just want, actually, there's just so much pain. People just want to lash out and hurt back at this point. Of course. And protect people. They just want to hurt people. And Bitcoin is going to, people are not going to distinguish Bitcoin from crypto. As much as we try to do that, as much as we need to seize this moment and do exactly that. And, you know, the Swan Conference was amazing in doing speaker after speaker, telling that story. But as much as we want to do that, realistically, no. The, uh, the public has been hurt. They do not make the distinction. They're going to come after us with ridiculous regulation. And what we're going to have to do is figure out where the limits are. You know, this kind of like, we're not going to let unhosted wallets be regulated. We're, we don't want reporting requirements for individual citizens. We don't want something like FETI to be like I- eliminated from possible, you know, being legal. We have to guard this regulation from being sweeping and we have to make it targeted. Like, look at what actually happened and how people got ripped off. Is it securities masquerading as tokens and and assets, you know, something they're not as non-securities? Well, then close that loophole. You treat securities alike. Is it, is it exchanges not having proof of reserves? Okay. Regulate exchanges, but don't, don't try to kill a new and rising technology that threatens uh, you know, powerful institutions, banks, governments, simply because, you know, people got hurt in a, in a, in a retail investment setting, right? Like that, th- that would be a huge, huge mistake. Well, it was more than a retail investment set. Retail yeah, yeah. It's institutions yeah. as well. Institutions yeah. got hurt. I mean, some of them, you, you have to blame them for their own due diligence. Sequoia, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, I mean, fucking idiots there, honestly. You're just in following Sequoia in oh, the lemmings. Oh my God. But also, actually, a bunch of people lost their jobs. Have lost their jobs, and then they're not at fault for this. Not at all. And and I I don't want the individual retail Bitcoin user to be regulated and surveilled. But should an exchange be regulated in in having proof that it has the reserves to back the Bitcoin that is allowed to trade? I don't know. Is that a bad idea? Is that we, a good we idea? You have to think at the system level. So we already have. We already have quite a lot of regulation around finance in the US. And so when people see a site that looks just like one of their other financial sites, you know, they just assume it's regulated in the same way. 
we're not in we're not in a vacuum. We're not thinking about this from the ground up. We have consumers who have expectations of protection, right? So that's the problem. It's like with like, like Dave Portnoy saying, like, where's my Bitcoin that I had on FTX? Like, how do I get it? Right? There's an expectation. It's with your safe moon, Mr. Portnoy. Exactly. There's an expectation that your money is there. Not that it's been re-apothecated like a billion times and people are just gambling with it. You just have an IOU, you have nothing. Well, that expectation is the problem. And where does that expectation come from? Would people have had it in 1920? No, they actually didn't have that expectation because we didn't have regulation. Uh, we didn't have the, reg the regulation in the traditional financial system. So this is why it's tricky because you want to think in this kind of clean sheet way, like philosophically, how should we build up the best system? But you can't because we're already in a world that's shaped by existing regulation. And the question is not what would the ideal system be? It's like, how do we best integrate this financial system into the traditional one? This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also today we have Ledger. Now recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. 
The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Yeah, my my thing here isn't about uh, protecting the individual. There is enough education out there how to protect your Bitcoin as an individual level. It is systemic failure of Bitcoin caused by frauds, criminals, and liars. That is what I worry about. There's a systemic destruction of Bitcoin because of, you know, we, we may see other, there are rumors around Jump, rumors about Crypto.com, there's rumors about Huobi. There's, you know, if we keep seeing these exchanges fail, what is the systemic destruction that happens to Bitcoin? I, I, I can't I can't go with this though, because I because look, Chancellor on the brink, right? This is how we got started in Bitcoin. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not talking about a bailout here. Right. But I'm talking about So you imagine Satoshi's like, okay, I don't want bailouts, but I do want regulations so that this sort of thing never happened. Yeah, Lehman, but, you know, no, he wouldn't like that either. But maybe it isn't regulation. Maybe eBay. maybe it is just doing a better job of enforcement on prosecuting criminals. I'm all I mean, for that. Because we have multiple people involved in three hours capital. And Luna's a tricky one. Obviously, it was fucking dumb, but I don't know if he knew how dumb it was. And he committed, I don't know if he was stupidity or a crime. I don't know the full details. Some people just say, yeah, it's a scam because everything's a scam. But three arrows capital and all the people involved at FTX at the highest level and Alameda who understood what's going on all need to go to jail. And I'm, I say that without any shame at all. No, no objection They here. need to be behind bars. Bernie Madoff got 150 years in jail because he ruined the lives of multiple people. People committed suicide. Funds were destroyed. Uh, 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 retirements were destroyed. Operations that were meant to happen didn't happen. Like the, the, the contagion, the social contagion to people's lives with that was... Uh, terrible and for him to spend the rest of his life and die in jail kind of he earned that he knew what he was doing we need to see if i think if we see enforcement where people face serious jail term that is gonna that is gonna create at least a fear for other people to commit the same crimes you I, would I honestly I, I agree with you entirely but i don't agree with the last thing you said like what? i don't think that much i think i think that the ultimate urge to take people's money in the way that, and to, you know, to, to become a billionaire on a Ponzi setup is just too great. And even if the pun, even if the precedent is out there for going to jail, like people are going to continue to do it. Okay. What about, maybe we'll reduce the rate at which they do it. But like these, these are psychopaths, man. These are, these are psychopaths. What about the people giving them the money and, and enabling them? Should they face any, consequences you know should sequoia face consequences for enabling a crime by not performing the correct due diligence look i know people are listening and be like the fuck you want about but like i'm just putting all those ideas on the table to say what is the answer and maybe the answer is wild west right fuck it is that that punishment not losing 200 million (laughs) dollars yeah but they don't lose these people are so fucking rich they make so much money that is just one failed investment and they know eight out of ten will fail and they'll hit the jackpot with one and and it's it's a good question to think about i haven't really thought about that 
I guess I'm thinking more, I mean, 2008 is what motivated me, actually. It was the lead up to 2008, seeing all my students go to Wall Street and then seeing the collapse and reading about it. Like I read the When Genius Failed about long-term capital management. And of course I read- the That's the about, Enron one that came up yesterday. I haven't read the Enron book. Well, is it, that was, it's an, okay, because I raised the Enron one, um, the smartest guys in the room. Yeah. And somebody said you need to see when genius fails. It's uh, so good. But I thought that was about Enron as well. No, it's oh, about okay. long-term capital management, like multiple Nobel Prize winning economists who start a hedge fund and get over their skis and then have to be rescued by the Fed. They, they thought they had a system. Yeah, they had a risk, they had a risk model. Yeah. And basically when you get a risk model, this is kind of an insight I owe to the book and thinking about it, but also for to Nassim Taleb. Whenever you have a risk model and that justifies a certain amount of leverage, I think they were like 30 to one and long-term capital management or whatever. But whenever you justify a certain amount of leverage is still within a band of risk, your model has to take itself into account, right? The fact that you are now dumping tens of millions of dollars into a strategy changes the risk of that strategy. And that's kind of what wasn't in that kind of self, right. uh, self, it wasn't self-including. All right. Sorry. I'm outside of no, my no, specialty. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, leverage seems to be one of the main issues here. It's leverage, which is causing a lot of the fucking problems. Yeah. It's the unwind of the leverage. So, so this is, this is part of why I say like, I, I do have like a kind of, I kind of want the wild west because this is what leverage does. We have a fiat created problem here. This problem wasn't created by Bitcoin. Bitcoin is suffering the, the fallout because it's a reserve asset within the crypto world, right? So then when people get in trouble, they dump their Bitcoin. So then the price of Bitcoin falls. So weirdly, the fact that Bitcoin is dropping in this environment is evidence of the role that it, the functional role that it plays mm. in the crypto world as money, as a reserve currency, right? So it's like, and, and I expect it to keep falling if I had to guess, because I think the unwind hasn't happened. Uh, hasn't hasn't finished, right? But I kind of want it to all go to shit. I don't want to save this system again because leverage needs to wipe out. Like the the whole system is corrupt and it needs to blow up. We, what's the alternative? It's saving everything again. Like the CZ putting together a fund to rescue. But yeah, again, right? I don't. That's it's not like, what not what I'm talking like, about. I saw what he said. That to me seemed like a bit of a self own. It's like hold on. Why do you, you need? You have to rescue the thing you yeah. just destroyed. It's like kill yeah. someone, give them CPR. You know. Like, yeah. <laughs> are you? Are you is that a signal? Are you? Have you got issues there over at Binance Easy? Oh man. I don't know. I mean, it's just but like whatever. I'm not talking about bailouts. I right. do not I want know. bailouts. I want people prosecuted. I'm just wondering. Fraud if, is fraud. It yeah. needs to be punished. It needs to be well defined. I is agree there with that. is there any regulation that would make? the system better. And if there's none, but, fine, I'm sorry. How, how can you have any faith that the regulation would be good for us? Like that's the thing where I really struggle. I said, like, you can say you're pro-regulation and that's cool, but like I've got zero faith that it would be good regulation. Well, that's why I'm just asking the question, like, is there anything? I'm not saying let's have regulation. I'm saying, is there any? Is there to, anything? Yeah. Like, so for example, exchanges have KYC AML rules. I think that is bad regulation. I think that harms us all. Okay, so right. I, I'm not a, I'm not saying I'm pro what the regulation is now. I'm not saying I'm confident in people. I'm just asking the question: Is there anything that could stop these psychopaths? I mean, if I were, and maybe there's not. Maybe there's not. I mean, if I were Gary Gensler, I'd be really ashamed right now. I mean, you know, he's got his little victories of like prosecuting or <laughs> char charging like 
you know, Kim Kardashian, <laughs> like it, it, that's who he went after. Not like he, he, he didn't go after the actual fraudsters. He went after like an influencer. And then that, that super polished video that he put out, which was so hard to watch. That was the hardest thing to watch since the, uh, uh, we're not, uh, we're all going to make it video by what's, uh, yeah. I mean, the hard, like the next cringiest that, Mark thing, Zuckerberg's sister. Mark Zuckerberg's sister, like the next cringiest thing was. <coughs> have you seen that? I don't think I have. Oh my God. Have you not seen it? Don't, don't Oh, come on, do it, do it. <laughs> not here. Make, I can't, yeah, I can't do bear it. it. Let's do it. I can't actually bear to watch it. Have you seen this, Jeremy? Oh, yeah. This is like the worst thing. And actually watching it after this collapse is going to be... Is this like a music video? Yeah. It's a music video. So this also points towards, there's, a, there's another Tyler? British football team called Crawley Town who were bought by a group. If called, yeah, and they called their group, we're all going to make it, and they bought Crawley Town, who are a league football team. So we Oh, I saw it. a story on that recently. Yeah, yeah fucking New York, story on it. New York Times covers that. Yeah, New York Times story. They don't cover us. They didn't even mention you. I looked, I looked through the whole thing for Bedford and it did see it. Yeah, but to me, it's the, it's the, <laughs> it's the perfect mirror of Bitcoin and crypto, I know. right? We are the Bitcoin team. We're top of the league. We're smashing it. They, when, when I looked, they were bottom of the league. All their fans hate them. They do the Big New York Times story. Yeah. Media covers them as darlings, right? Motherfuckers. It was like amazing. Totally ignores Bedford. <laughs> Is this it? it? I don't this know. is not it. This okay. is not it. No. Okay. Search for um, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Wag me. I can't believe you're making me do this. I'm going to ruin your day. There You'll is. be traumatized. This is it. That's it. Oh, I'm, I can't I'm already done. Yeah, oh, go fuck yourself. Can we turn this off? No, you got you to watch a bit more. It's so bad. Oh my God, I can't do it. We got... Gensler <laughs> <laughs> yeah. video is, is a close second <laughs> to that. Yeah, um, I, I, I was traumatized for a little while, but they can sell phone with that. If we pull out on the video, you know they get the copyright to, to this whole show. Do they? <laughs> nah, fuck it, they can have it, I don't care. No, but I, so I, you're asking good questions. I will say this is exactly the kind of question the Bitcoin Policy Institute is like designed to answer. Yeah. It's just that I'm not the person to do it, but like we have, you know, legal econ policy people who who can weigh into the weeds and look at alternatives and say what's what's healthy and what would threaten Bitcoin's, you know, functionality and potential. So, you know, I, I think it's I think that's why we're partly really why we're built, not just to educate, but to evaluate pr policy proposals and you know, think them through. Hmm. Well, that's why people need to support them, fund them, and I hope so. help them. Um, I, I think Bitcoin Policy Institute is fantastic. I kind of hope they end up doing something in Europe as well because we need a little bit of support over there. We've been talking. Yeah. Do you speak to my brother? I not about this one. Ah. but I have talked to you know some people, some Bitcoiner academics in in Europe about it. Yeah, we're being left behind. We need to do a little bit more there. Yeah, and the question is something like you know what does that what does that look like? Do we just do we just work together on an informal basis or do we like have like BPI US, BPI Europe and like, you know, big umbrella organization kind of like Greenpeace US and Greenpeace and, and what, that's a fucking Greenpeace. <laughs> yeah. Trust like having it with Greenpeace. That's an organizational decision, you know, that I haven't really thought through. I'm just more like contacting European Bitcoiners who are academics and being like, hey, would you like to work on stuff together? Just pro bono. Yeah. How are you going to go back to your old job? 
You're not going to be able he's to, not, dude. He's not. You're not going to be able to. Like, teach a class in the spring. In the spring. Um, but the real question is, how do you fund doing this full time? Yeah, I don't know. So far, it's been out of my stack mostly. Yeah. So that's. I don't have that big a stack. I wore the socks again. You know? Did you? <laughs> the socks would fund would have funded me easily. How much were those socks again? How Five many? Bitcoin a piece, <laughs> and I got a drawer full of them. So <laughs> a couple dozen pairs. So, and that was just one of the many things I spent on. You know. So, like, it's weird to be having these discussions when I... Uh, oh, yeah. dude. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how that's going to go. I mean, I'm advising companies. Yep, uh, that's a know, good start. What I said earlier is, like, people contacting me. Uh, yeah, well, some of them on your show, you know, like, uh, Nemo was on your show. Yeah. I'm super excited about what, what Optimize is doing. Um, I, I mean, yeah, uh, Optimize is, like, integrating Bitcoin mining with solar in this super cool way. You know how Google has this 24-7, 365 procurement agreement? Mm -hmm. Like they're basically committed to buying renewable energy in the local market at the time they use it. So buying from wind, solar, hydro, wherever they set up a an operation, that makes them the darlings of like the Sierra Club who point to Bitcoin miners and say, you're not doing that. But actually, Bitcoin plays potentially the super powerful role of making that possible. Huh. Eat Be it. Because when, yeah, when you have that commitment, and Google has that commitment, they're putting a constant, they have to constantly buy in a local market with renewable. But that means they there's this constant demand for renewable when renewable is intermittent in a local market, which means that the renewable producers are going to have waste and underpriced power at other times of day. Right? We so know some people who want to buy. We know that. some people who can do that. So now we have a company that sets up with you know uh, machine learning intelligence based on the local grid, the local weather, that uh, sizes a Bitcoin mining operation and integrates it into the solar, so that they can serve Bitcoin. They can serve Google's constant demand, and still make the most of their uh, of their solar panels or their. Uh, turbines or whatever like ultimately we could oh gosh i think i want to i hope i get this right I, we can 10x the entire uh bitcoin network on new solar alone right using a small percentage of that new solar to mine bitcoin with optimizes uh uh software and hardware like that's it's like it's a ridiculous company uh best 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 ridiculous company what they're doing I, I mean adam's show it was another one where i was standing up and cheering right i'm so well you literally standing up and cheering i really w literally was i literally <laughs> stood up at my desk i couldn't sit down <laughs> yeah because that's I, what, what bitcoin did yeah gets you exercising gets you up <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i i when when yeah i mean some of it was you guys were mentioning me a lot on the show right so it was, it was like oh i'm on the show oh so you really just stood up when we said your name no <laughs> I, I i'm thrilled that people get to see what bitcoin is doing for mitigating methane right it, 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 so some i'm advising companies that are largely aligned with my vision the vi the vision that i articulated in my first appearance on your show like I had one particular product idea, but also a vision for how you, you're the one who articulated it. I said, I articulated, you know, you articulated it back to me. What you know, did there I? would just be this virtuous cycle of, of people investing in, in, uh, you know, Bitcoin itself and that driving, uh, you know, or people investing in hash rate and that driving the, uh, demand for 
green Bitcoin mining, that greening the grid, okay, driving yeah. up the price of Bitcoin. And they're just being this virtuous cycle that both greens the grid and greens Bitcoin and expands Bitcoin into institutional adoption all at the same time. Right. That was your vision. So that's basically companies that in some way advance that vision. Yes. Are the ones that I'm, ad that I'm advising. So we need to get you about 10 of those. I'm, I'm pretty close. Okay. But who knows how many will survive? Well, then I, I, sus <laughs> I suspect you're not charging enough. And then uh, I'm but, getting paid in equity. So, yeah, that, you know, uh, anyway, yeah, I, 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 that's that's we got to get you there. We got to get you there. Um, I, I love this. I love what's going on. I love seeing this. Um, Danny said to me before the show, he said, you're not going to look at the notes. And I, I've scanned down a couple of times. I didn't need the notes for today, man. There's so much we didn't talk about. I got to talk good. about a couple of things. All right, go on. Because I promised a Twitter following that I would. Go on, let's do it. Okay. Let me, let me introduce, there's two innovations that I want to talk about, but I want to frame it first. So uh, I'm a philosopher. I'm not an energy expert. I'm not an engineer, but I analyze kind of dialectical situations or argumentative situations. And of course, we, I always start talking to people about Bitcoin's energy use, where they're at, and they're always giving me some DeVries stat about how much Bitcoin destroys the environment or how much energy it uses. And then as many, many Bitcoiners have pointed out, we usually move beyond that discussion once we kind of correct that FUD, oh, Bitcoin actually only uses 0.15% of all energy, primary energy. And it's only responsible for 0.1% of uh, emissions. And that's using Cambridge's numbers, which are probably high. So this is like, why the big, why the big kerfuffle about something so small, right? That's stage one. That never works. People are never like, oh, okay, well then I'm okay with Bitcoin. Have I ever gotten that response? I don't, I don't think I've ever gotten it, right? Of course not. No, because that was never the issue in the first place. They didn't understand Bitcoin's value, so they didn't see any reason for it to consume any energy or to create any emissions. They don't get the value case. Or they heard about early, didn't buy any, feel shit because they've seen other people get rich. Yeah, the saltiness index. Yeah, thanks you, thank you, Craig. <laughs> thank you, Craig. So, right, they could just be salt. Yeah. But it's a lot, oftentimes they don't get the value proposition. They think it's just gambling, it's just a waste. Um, you know, they think it's bad people who have it. So then we end up talking about the value of Bitcoin, my, Bitcoin itself. But there's bigger frames than just that. I think the bigger conversational frame than just that is Bitcoin valuable. Because like some people are convinced, some people are not convinced. It's like, okay, so we have disagreements about how valuable Bitcoin is or what its value consists. We're not gonna settle all those disagreements, right? What do we do when we disagree about the value of something in terms of something that uses energy, something that has a footprint? How do we handle that disagreement? And here we have a supposition under, underlying a lot of critics of Bitcoin is that, well, the people in charge get to make that decision. They get to decide what's valuable and how people get access to energy. That's what like politicians should do for us or regulators. Whereas my view is like, no, they have no business deciding that. Um, every user has a right to access energy if they pay for it, if they pay for it. We let markets decide how energy is distributed. We don't decide that on the basis of some politicians' judgments of value. That's a bigger frame. And then it's like, if there are externalities associated with the production of energy, like 
you know, emissions, pollution, et cetera, regulate that. So if you, if you have a problem with coal, regulate coal, not Bitcoin mining, right? And then that regulation will equally cover Bitcoin mining and every other user of electricity, whether you're plugging your electric car, whether you're like surfing porn or whatever, right? You're affected equally. So philosophically, like that's the bigger frame. Then there's another frame. I don't know if it's even bigger or it's just kind of parallel. And that's Jeff Booth's frame of the problem with Bitcoin's environmental impact is really tiny compared to the problem of our environmental impact as a species that's grounded on the brokenness of money. You know, mm. it's because we have an artificially enhanced money supply an out of control money supply that um, people are forced to spend rather than save. And that means consumption, upfront consumption that doesn't need to happen. And also that excess in money supply leads to malinvestment, you know? You've had a lot of people on your show yeah. talk about this and won't rehash it, but I think uh, Stephen you know, Lupka did it really well. Like yep. Money is a signaling device, it's a measuring tool. And what we have here is a distorting, dynamic, real-time distorting measuring tool of everything. I think of it in physics terms, like we're measuring things from an, not an inertial reference frame, but a, an accelerating reference frame. And that creates malinvestment. That malinvestment means that uh, lots of energy is being expended, resources being consumed that otherwise wouldn't in a rational, properly measured system. And that's huge. That effect is huge. So fix the money, fix um, the malinvestment, fix the undue forwarded consumption. And then Saifedean style terms, this would be time preference. Does Bitcoin lower time preference? And that means different things. I don't know whether Bitcoiners really develop low time preference as a psychological matter of fact. I kind of think they do because I experienced it myself, but I don't feel comfortable putting that out there because it's an empirical proposition it actually needs to be tested. That's my view. Okay. Anyway, that's a big frame. Okay. One more frame. And I think this is the biggest one for how to talk about Bitcoin energy and the environment. And that is, and I really came came to see this fully with in conversation with a local Portland friend, Colin Brown, Bitcoin as a, as a tool, as a tool that is so basic that we don't know where it's going to go. We, we don't even have a clue. Like you asked me like, what's its impact and when do we hit carbon neutral? Not only do I not know, I think nobody knows and nobody could know because it's such a basic building block of our future as a species. <laughs> And I want to kind of back up to things we've already talked about in the show. Look at the innovations on Bitcoin and mining in particular, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, that Satoshi did not anticipate, that nobody in 2011 anticipated, or 2015, or even six months ago didn't anticipate. But think about, no, just the people who've been on your show. Like yeah. You just said Austin, Mitchell on, right? That's kind of foreseeable, but did we, re did we really foresee how instant payment could, uh, you know, improve the efficiency of the power world, like paying for power. Like, did, did we really see that? And are we thinking nope. about all the ways in which instant payment can do better than credit and, you know, fractionally splitting revenue among uh, people who need to be paid rather than paying them sort of serially and stepwise? Like, 
Well, the unknown unknowns is the, the most unknown unknowns. Exactly. It's the most exciting part of Bitcoin. Like, absolutely. Four years ago, I paid little to no attention to mining beyond bought a few ASICs and plugged them in. And to me, ASICs were secure network security block creation, which they are. Yeah, but to me, they were never what the fuck we've been talking about today. Yeah. And that's where we've come in four years. In four years' time, what is the next? Like, have, has Bitcoin itself, has it um, disrupted another industry? Is it going to disrupt multiple industries? No, it's disrupted banking. It's disrupted cross-border payments. You know, it's disrupted authoritarian control. Yeah, nice. Disrupted a little bit of uh, nice. uh, censorship, yep. depending on how, you know, your quality of... Yep. Um, you know, your skills in doing that. And it's, it's disrupted journalistic groups that are disrupting censorship. So, yeah. yeah, it's disrupted podcasting. It's disrupted football. <laughs> All right, sorry, I'm just kidding. But it's disrupted uh, the, the energy infrastructure industry. Like it's disrupted. I'll give you a case for yeah, one of these companies I'm advising, Vespine. Right? They are proposing something to uh, that would achieve 20% of the EPA's goals in methane reduction one fifth would be achieved by one company in bitcoin right on, on just from from capturing and burning landfill gas it would, it would achieve one fifth of the epa's goals like did 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 how see, see that coming like I, I doubt it dude it's the ultimate disruption technology i mean i i used to talk about this book on the show a long time ago there's a book i read years ago my friend recommended called engines that move markets can you bring that book up see mm-hmm. if you can find the index okay and it was about the innovations that fundamentally changed the world. Um, obviously, the internet's in there. Yeah, uh, uh, Electricity, I think, is one of them. I think uh, the railroads. It was like what this invention suddenly changed. The telegraph. The telegraph, yeah. And I know this book has to get rewritten with mm-hmm. a new chapter mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. which is Bitcoin. And it's right. not there yet. You got it. So we've, we've all, we, I mean, got no. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, this is very common knowledge saying, oh, Troy's got a new idea. Bitcoin's a tool. Like, yeah, everybody knows that. But no, I, here's how I'm thinking about it. It's the kind of tool that's basic, like one of those. Like fire. Yeah. It's a really basic tool, not only for coordinating. And this is where it's, this is where there's an idea here. It's not only for coordinating human behavior in ways that we couldn't before. You know, in a way, think about it, like the internet allows peer-to-peer communication without interference of an intermediary. So any content can go from anyone to anyone. Now we have a-, a China now, hold my beer. China hold my beer, yeah. Still, still working, but it, yeah, it is obviously contingent on the underlying network devices, but it in principle is a platform for communication in an uncensored, way and and the bitcoin network allows the transfer of value in the same way from individual to individual and so you know just like social media and the internet spawned you know revolution say arab spring they were missing that value component now got the value component to go with it think about how that's going to affect the world okay big thought and i don't have the answer to like what that does now that we can you know crowdfund wars well hold on we, we, we saw it in belarus with lukashenko i mean it, look it exactly. ultimately failed but there was that moment in time where 
people wanted to protest against Lukashenko and they wanted state workers to strike. But their problem is if they're striking, they're not getting paid. So people were able to send Bitcoin to them. They were able to sell that Bitcoin on local markets and they were able to pay their rent and feed their family. They were externally supported by the Bitcoin community in trying to bring down a dictator. Yes, it failed. But there was an ember there that worked for a while. And, you know, there's something very similar that could happen in many places. I was in Oslo talking to these human rights activists, the ability to keep your street captains on the corner in a protest is do or die. It's make or break because people are poor and they, when they protest, they're not making money. And that's where a protest fizzles out. And if the dictator can kind of outlast it, then they can stay in power. And if they can't outlast it, they, they lose power. Right. So, you know, I mean, uh, this is very, very true. And we're just figuring it out. But that's all on the Bitcoin side, the ability of humans to transfer value. But on the mining side, Bitcoin is an equally basic innovation, equally basic and equally profound and unpredictable innovation. You know, it's not just ASICs are not just um, money printing machines. And what I've come to see them as is auxiliaries. They're auxiliaries to other industrial processes. I said earlier that when the price of Bitcoin fell, I was happy about that because it drives down the margins of Bitcoin mining and it drives down the capex required for ASICs. And that allows Bitcoin to behave in more pro-social ways. But I want to kind of go through some of those, right? So one of those is, yeah, it's solar and wind, it's intermittent power, being able to use, use that. But some of it is the heat, heat thing too. You don't always need heat and uh, uh, the, the question is like, what's, what's dominant when Bitcoin pairs with another industry? Like when it pairs with heating, is the heating the dominant thing? Is the Bitcoin the dominant thing? If Bitcoin has, has a low price, it's more flexibly integrated with other industries. I want to give, I promised people I would give two ideas of these kinds of mind-blowing possibilities for Bitcoin. Okay. One of them is a company that I'm advising in Margo too. That, well, let me set it up this way. They're, they use the heat from Bitcoin miners uh, and they heat up water. Okay. Um, name of this company is Flow, Flow Solve. And um, the temperature on chips is not hot enough to boil water. Um, but it is if you put that water under negative pressure, if you put it in a vacuum, drop the pressure on the water, you can boil it at a lower temperature. So that's what they do. Custom heat sink between ASICs and water. Boil water. And when you boil water, you can... Make cups of tea. You can make cups of tea. <laughs> um, Hold you on. Can, you can mean we're going to get ASICs in our kettles? Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know if you want your tea at a lower temperature. Under, you know, boiling for the sake of boiling, I don't know if it matters for tea or whether it's the actual temperature you need. I'm just fucking around though. But... I'm, I'm actually open to all crazy ideas, even crazy like that, right? But no, no, here's what, here's what matters is that once you can boil water, then you have steam and then you can condense that water again. And that's a kind of purification, right? Okay. So that's distillation, distilling water. So we can distill water with Bitcoin miners. Did you ever think of that? No. Nope. Okay. What does this mean? It means you have distillation that is basically subsidized by mining. 
or you can think of mining as being subsidized by the distillation of water. Anywhere you have water, however dirty it is, and you need pure water, it's drinkable, it's usable in industrial processes, you can do that now more cheaply because of Bitcoin. And we're headed for water crises. I think everybody agrees yes. about this, right? Humans need water. Most basic, the most basic need. It's most of our bodies. You wouldn't think that Bitcoin mining could help you provide it, but it can, right? If provided this idea works and scales. Uh, not only that, but there's like a twist on it that distilled water absorbs carbon and you can actually use this, this distilled water to do carbon capture. That's another story. Okay, next idea, mind-blowing idea, is carbon capture. So carbon, carbon capture from the ambient air is very, very expensive. Like est estimates range, whatever, $100 a ton, $200 a ton. We set up these, there are different technologies that do it, but we set up these large machines in the middle of nowhere, feed them tons of power, and they blow air uh, across a, a medium or through an, an innocuous solution and get carbon distillates, which you then either push underground or you make things out of them, right? You can make cement out of this distillates, for instance, or you can make fertilizer out of it. So um, we need these things, according to the IPCC, to meet our goal, especially for the latter half of the 20. 21st century, we are counting on large scale carbon capture happening, not just carbon capture at the site of, uh, w w you know, where we burn things, but ambient air. And this has always seemed to me absurd that we would build these large installations, fire up these huge fan banks to capture carbon out of the air, <laughs> but we are counting on it. To meet, uh, to meet our, our goals for the latter half of the second, this, this century. Okay, 90% of the cost of these machines, the ones that use fans, is the fans themselves and running the fans. What else can you think of? That needs fans. That has large banks of fans. Yeah. ASICs. So this invention, this idea is we use the fan banks for the cooling of ASICs and also we push air through an aqueous solution. We get distillates out, we get carbon out. So we do one, two things at the same time, mine and capture carbon from the air. And then Elizabeth Warren put this in your pipe and smoke it, you know? <laughs> the, thing that you, the thing that you think is destroying the environment cuts 90% of the cost out of direct air carbon capture. Yeah. Okay, those are just two examples. The unknown unknowns, dude. The unknown unknowns just loom out there, but uh, Dhruv uh, at Unchained, you know, Dhruv, Dhruv yeah, yeah. Bonsal, so he, yeah. he asked me this question, like, what is it you think about, I was giving him this pitch that I just gave you. You know, Bitcoin, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's heating greenhouses, it's, it's distilling whiskey, it's uh, it's moving into a phase where it's only going to be profitable when paired with some other activity. If you're not selling your heat, if you're not using your fans for something else, if you're not taking free energy off the grid, you're not going to be competitive. You're not going to make it. Yeah. So the, the way that mining looks now is not how it's going to look in ten years, because uh, because you'll your main profit is going to come from the auxiliary activity, which is solves one of the questions we get a lot of emails in. One that comes in regularly is what happens 
when the subsidies reduced. Exactly. So this makes me feel a lot better about <laughs> fee FUD and I mean reward FUD, block reward FUD, because this is a serious concern. I think is maybe the most serious concern about Bitcoin is the long-term security budget. Yeah. Because the halving is brutal, right? Halving is exponential. Just like we can't think of exponential functions in the up direction, we can't think about them in the down direction either. We're just not built that way. So 20 years from now, the block reward is tiny. Uh, but yeah, if Bitcoin is thoroughly integrated with other processes, like let's say you're distilling water and uh, you know you spend you spend on energy, let's say um, uh, one Bitcoin to mine 0.1 Bitcoin, but you're getting profit from the distillation that's over a Bitcoin, right? So you you end up spending more than a Bitcoin to mine a Bitcoin basically in your operation, but your profits are making from up for that and your auxiliary function. Okay. That's how I see all of Bitcoin mining going. What does that mean? It means that a very tiny security budget in Bitcoin buys a lot of hash rate, a lot, a lot, a lot of hash rate as Bitcoin kind of finds its most efficient auxiliary partners, its most profitable auxiliary partners. And then if you want to attack the network and say, just set up a massive farm, just like Riot has or Marathon or whatever, that doesn't do anything else. It's not selling its ambient heat. It's not using its fans. It's not using excess energy because that's already taken. But you're just going to pay like ordinary utility level rates to set up a new operation that does nothing else. The 51% attack's harder. 51% attack is going to be basically impossible. Yeah. So this is how I came to, you know, stopped worrying about the FIFUD and hmm. learn to embrace the having, you know? Well, this is where we need to get all the philosophers, philosophers around one table and hash this out and get into this. Yeah. Well, I want to say one more thing. Yeah, do it. The question that Drew asked me was, what is it about Bitcoin mining that makes it this ultimate auxiliary device? Why aren't other technologies like this pairing up with everything? Why, why is it that, you know, other things are more predictable? And I think it's the basic features of what Bitcoin is and what mining is. You know, basically Bitcoin is a store of value and a payment system that's direct. And that's what makes like Austin's business possible. But it monetizes stranded energy instantly anywhere in the world at the same rate without any need for infrastructure. So if you want to co-locate a mining business with another business, you don't have to worry about two sets of transport like two sets of whatever trucking or piping or whatever, just the one, just the auxiliary business, because Bitcoin only needs power and internet, right? So it, it's suited to co-locate with anything because of its location agnosticism. It's flexible because of its time agnosticism that allows it to pair better with other things. And then it produces heat. So basically anything that uses low grade heat could potentially pair with it. Ultimately that's maybe purification of water, or other things, but literally think like anything we use heat for, and we use that heating is, is a, a large percentage of the energy that humans use, could possibly pair with Bitcoin mining, all right? Any also cooling mechanisms like fans. So in its essence, Bitcoin, the reason Bitcoin is a tool that we cannot sort of foresee everything that can be done with it and it's gonna keep blowing our minds, is that it's the perfect pairing for any industrial process that uses heat, for instance. And it's also the perfect way to use 
stranded or waste or energy. It's going to monetize energy anywhere and any time at the same exact rate. And that makes it just an enormously flexible and promising tool. And that's, for me, the biggest frame. Once you start thinking about Bitcoin as pure potential for human ingenuity, because it's so basic and flexible, then when you talk about Bitcoin's energy use, it's like you're talking about the energy use of, yeah, the, the, the telegraph or the, the wheel. I imagine people sitting around with the first wheel. How will this be used? Is it good? Is it bad? What's its impact on the environment? And it would have been just pointless to have that conversation, right? Utterly pointless. No way two people sitting around back when the first wheel was invented could think about every application of the wheel. And we can't think about the, every application of Bitcoin and mining either. They we would not have thought it would be used for flying machines to land on runways. Exactly. So, so, so how should we think about Bitcoin? I've, yeah, talking to the, the, to come back to the beginning, um, to, to uh, Bob uh, Shear, the, the prof whose class I lectured in, I asked him like, what's your thought on like the internet itself? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What did, he's an older guy. I was like, were you right about where it would go? And he's like, I've given up even talking about whether the internet is good or bad. I can only say one thing about the internet. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's changed our world. And I was like, that's exactly the appropriate attitude for Bitcoin. It's just powerful. We don't know what it's going to do. Right? We don't. And so we have, what do we do as like people and as regulators? And we, we watch out for the worst effects it could have. We think about them and try to guard against them. We take advantage of the best ones, but this is just a wild ride we're on called life and civilization and the development of technology. Oh, we just got to enjoy the ride. <laughs> you know what I mean? We can't think that we're, we know it and we're on top of it. The, the, the reaction that Warren and others have is a, a fearful way to approach life and, and human progress, right? It's, it's just it's thinking you need to know what will happen with each technology before you allow it to develop. And that's the biggest frame. All right, man. That's a fucking great ending. Um, we need to do this again. Yeah, this is weird. We, we meandered all over the place and it felt like we were just getting started. Dude, we... Um, there's always so much to talk about. We're doing a Canada trip at some point as well. So uh, we maybe will see you there. But look, we'll find some time. Like you've got an open permanent invite to come on the show because there's always so much to talk about. And these, I mean, we need to, I need to go and process these myself. Um, all righty. Listen, uh, do you have anywhere new you want to send people apart from your Twitter? <laughs> it's just Twitter, you know. It's right. just Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean... Yeah, I'm I'm a slave to that that thing. I'm trying to you need wean to, myself off of Twitter. Well, so you make a mistake that I do. You feel you need to answer everyone. I do the I same. Danny's always telling me off for it. You need to not do that. Cause I see you doing. I'm like, what are you doing? And then I fucking do it myself. Um, but listen, we will share that in the show notes. Keep doing what you're doing. I love how you're crushing it. And um, man, it's such an honor to be back. Uh, I owe you. I owe you guys. You uh, don't know a shit. Time. No, I do. No, you. You. you uh, you gave me a platform and then more than that, you invited all of the people I love in Bitcoin and that are, that are consonant with my vision. You invited them all on the show. And I, I felt like I was saying to Danny, like, I just don't even know what to say anymore because every, 
single area I touch, there's somebody who knows it better. And typically they've already been on your show. <laughs> it benefits us too. Look, keep doing it. Anything you need, you've got my details. You've got Danny, reach out. We will help you. But just keep doing it, man. You've crushed it. Thank I appreciate you, you as a Bitcoin, as a friend and as a guest on the show. Right back at you. Okay, what did you make of that? Do you enjoy that? If you haven't heard my other shows with Troy, please do go into the back catalogs. I think they'll probably be in the show notes. Go and check them out. Uh, I love talking to him. I could have Troy on any time he wants, and I could probably talk to him for hours. I think the work he's doing to try and combat the negative narrative around Bitcoin mining is so important, and it's always a pleasure just to hang out with these philosophers in this space. Bradley Rettler is the next one on my list, and I've definitely got to make that happen at some point. Bradley, if you're listening, we've got to get you on the show. You're the missing piece. Actually, do you know what? I'm going to get all these philosophers together in a room and just just talk shit with them, see where we go with it. Anyway, any questions about this, feel free to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and I will see you all on Friday.